Today, I have the pleasure to talk with Gurinder Singh Maan, who is a Sikh historian and has published three books. The first, The British and the Sikhs, Discovery, Warfare and Friendship from the 1700s to the 1900s, as well as Siddhi Dasam Granth Sahib, Questions and Answers, and the final book, The Granth of Guru Gobind Singh, Essays, Lectures and Translations, which was published by Oxford University Press. He's also the director of the Sikh Museum Initiative and the curator of the Anglo-Sikh Virtual Museum. On top of all of that, in his spare time, he's also an advisor for the upcoming movie, The Sikh Soldier. So, as always, thank you for making the time to have this conversation um, and yeah, and, and just being here. Um, obviously, everyone's busy with their lives and everything else that's happening. So no, thank you for that. No, thank you. And I'm glad to be here, Amar, Amar Singh. And your blog spot is proving to be a very additional resource to the kind of, you know, vast array of sources uh, for Sikh history. So firstly, I'd just like to say thank you to you. And also, why would you, Kalsa, why would you for that to all our listeners as well? No, thank you. Thank you. I have to admit, um, much of what I do is is actually kind of off the off the back of the work that you guys are doing because um yeah like your books are on my shelves um we've had the pleasure to, to bump into one another before um share similar circles and sangat and stuff so like thank you for the the work and the effort that you've put in over years and years and years um i'm actually quite excited to explore and find out a lot more so um we normally start with getting to find out a little bit about kind of your upbringing your, your family background how like a lot of us, um, we ended up in the diaspora in wherever we are. So for argument's sake, you're, you're based in Leicester. Um, and then also how you ended up where you are today. So um, I know that's covering probably quite a lot, but um, yeah, let, let's go with that first. Okay. Um, so Yadamak, yeah. So really, really pleased to be here. And uh, just for our listeners, uh, yeah, I really got my start. Um, actually, not even researching Sikhi, to be honest with you. I was actually researching history per se. I was very, very interested in learning about, say, the pyramids, for instance. I was really interested in understanding about Buddhism. I was really interested in learning about South Asian religions and South American religions. And so, therefore, growing up, oh, you had certain bits which were given to you as from the family in terms of, you know, what Sikh is about, what Sikh history is about, followed the usual trajectory of going to the Gurdwara and seeing the pictures of the Shaheeds and the Gurus on, you know, in the Gurdwaras, for instance. I mean, obviously, born here in the UK. Um, my parents are from Hasharpur and, you know, from the Jalandhar region as well. But um, so they, like with most families, second generation, third generation, they could only impart a certain level of Sikh history. But for me growing up, it was personally about just learning history per se. And I always felt if you are going to tackle a subject that you're really passionate about or keen, have some kind of a benchmark in a sense. Look at other world histories, look at other faiths and see what are they about? What do they kind of uh, bring to the table? And therefore, look at your own faith in context of that. And this does really bring into what our discussion today is about, about the Dasangrat, but we can allude to that later. So generally growing up, learning about world histories and philosophies, and roughly about 1997 or 95, actually, 1995, we're going back now, um, I just felt that um, I needed to pursue something in relation to Sikh history. And it was getting to a point where I was getting um, 
wanted to know a little bit more about the Siri Dustin Grant site. And so therefore, what happened was that I enrolled onto a course or an MA in South Asian religions at Democrat Universities thinking, well, you know, I'd like to research the Dustin Grant in terms of uh, a subject, not knowing or kind of knowing that this would be a catapult into something completely different that I did not imagine or envisage. So that That'll be my intro in that sense. No, no, definitely. Just before you, you continue, I just wanted to find out um, what was like your initial exposure to Dasamkran? So what, like, how were you first introduced to it? Because with, say, for argument's sake, just talking to some of the people who have messaged in um, over time about Dasamkran, a lot of them, uh, the impression that I get is, is that they learn about Dasamkran far later on in life. Like we kind of grow up knowing Guru Granth Sahib Ji, Banj Bihar, Jaj Sebzad, etc. And, and kind of we learn about Dasamkran and everything else that goes with it almost far later but considering you went in to do an MA with it what was your kind of initial exposure and what was your kind of initial understanding of Dasam Granth before you'd even started to do any research? A very good question I think the key thing was uh, very little to be honest with you but what happened was in 1995 uh, and again you know when we go to the Gudware you were talking to people you've heard very little about the city Dasam Granth side but I picked up the book by J.D. Cunningham called the history of the Sikhs, which is a very famous book. And in the back of it, he's got in the appendix, Ote Sega, um, he's talking about that's when Bashaka Grant. And I'm like, I'm a bit confused here. I've just read this book on history, a British history, version of history of Sikhism. And I'm getting confused. What is this Das Ven Pashaka Grant? And I'm looking through the compositions. I'm saying, okay, one or two look familiar, but what is this secondary grant? We're talking about 1995. I'm getting confused. I'm thinking, I don't understand this. I do not get what this secondary grant is about. I read through what the compositions are about. I thought, yeah, this is very, very interesting. And I don't understand what, what about this secondary uh, grant. So again, I started asking questions, asking people, and I was getting very either negative answers or questions, answers like, I don't know. It, it was almost like we don't know much about this secondary grant. And it was on that basis. And even when I went to say the good one and asked people, one or two people said, no, you don't tipani, you do not want to concentrate on the Dasan grant. I was like, hold on a second. This does not make no sense to me. And I thought, well, yeah, you're asking people a relevant question and you're not getting the answers back. And I was thinking, I don't like this. I do not want to be prepared to actually live in a calm where someone's not giving me answers. And I was hitting a few brick walls, actually. And I was thinking, OK, if that's the case, I'm going to do the subject myself then. And that is where the original kind of idea of why I went into it started from, just by asking questions, not getting the answers I wanted and saying, well, if no one else is going to tell me, I'm going to learn it myself. No, fair. I appreciate that. I think that's kind of what a lot of people that we've I've had the pleasure to talk with on the podcast and equally myself it's kind of like well you get so far with your research you talk to so many people about it and then you're kind of like well maybe I need to go and find out for myself maybe I need to go and do some legwork and actually um I think the most fascinating thing is is that although we're quite a young community in terms of comparison to say the Buddhists or other groups um we have a very detailed and quite unfortunately or fortunately depending how you look at it quite a hidden history um so just in some of the random things that i've been reading like i didn't know that there was um friction between just asking damgudi and just asking olivalia for argument's sake um the former having shot the latter through the arm at one point which in itself you never hear of growing up there's kind of this traditional um 
kind of religious narrative of that it's always kind of hunky dory and and, and whatever. Um, so it's interesting to 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 hear the similarities in that. Um, but then yeah, going back then obviously to you beginning this MA, were you planning when you started this to always take it down dust some ground to were you just like I'm just going to do this MA because I want to it was more about doing the MA and saying I want to produce some kind of um, work which actually kind of um, looks at the compositions of the Dasim Grant. It wasn't even about authenticity. It was about, well, we have a secondary scripture called the Siri Dasim Grant Saib, and we want to actually kind of um, look at it and see what, what's its value now? What does it represent? So I wasn't even looking at authenticity. I was just looking as, well, what does it represent? So the, so the title of Miami was the role of the Dasim Grant in Carlson very straightforward title. What does the Dasan Grant represent in Khalsa? As we kind of, you kind of mentioned at the intro is that um, the scripture does represent um, a milestone in terms of how we understand it on the Sanjar, for instance. We know the Barnis are re- represented in the Ardas, for instance, and we also know it represents in the Reras part and various other ceremonies and other practices and procedures related to the Khalsa. And that is just the initial um, a view that I wanted to get across, basically. Let's get the basics first. People have always jumped in far too much into a conversation without learning the basic steps. And I've always said to people, start from the start. We live in a YouTube social media culture where people want information from A to Z in 20 seconds. This work took over 10 years, over 15 years to even get a proper solid formation of what the city doesn't run subs about. And I'll be like, happy to see anyone who's prepared to spend that much time looking over the whole concept of what the Dasamrat means in relation to Khalsa and all these other kind of facets of the Dharam and say, you know, I'm prepared to spend my life, give up my money, give up various other um, things in their life just to pursue this end goal. And um, no, it's been, it's been a, a great journey, but it's been a hard journey as well. So I think um, initially it was just the basics, but with what was going on in the wider context of uh, individuals who felt that uh, the Barneys of, of the Dasim Grant didn't represent or were not in relation to Guru Gobind Singh, then it turned into another kettle of fish and a big controversy stroke uh, negative connotations on the grant which we can discuss a bit later but um, initially it was just about the very basics what's the basic level because you know with any subject you can go to the nth degree to actually learn study understand introspect and then you know take a lot more from it but I think our people sometimes want the answer straight away and don't want to do any core to themselves I have always had an issue about people saying I will go to Wikipedia to get some information I will go to this blog or I will get this bit of information from just reading one book. You've got to be a koji. That's what Guru Gobind Singh wanted our people to be. Sek means learner, as we all know, but we all need to be koji. You see, we have to be the people who will say, you know, I'm going to take five, six, seven hours out of my week to learn a subject. That's the concept of what Sikh is about, really, in terms of knowledge, understanding knowledge, propagating knowledge, sharing knowledge. So that's the school I come from, basically. No, fair enough. I completely agree with that, to be honest. And I think if we all did that, the 
intellectual landscape of the community would be extremely different and we'd be leaps and bounds ahead so it's a, it's definitely a um a goal to, to to strive towards um i just wanted to get a little bit deeper into your ma um and just find out kind of i know we can't necessarily um explain it completely in five minutes but just almost putting it into a nutshell for those listening what were some of the conclusions of the outcomes of your ma um and then a second question is what were the primary sources um that you used where did you go like what how difficult was it getting hold of some of the sources um did you find any of the kind of challenges or anything that was a surprise so for argument's sake um coming across something which kind of challenged that the usual historical narrative although i'm sure there were, were loads dealing with the um and yeah anything else that that perhaps is of interest in relation to your ma well like i said primarily the idea was just to kind of shine the light onto how the dustman side is actually represented within the council so the idea being what's the barneys which are represented in like i said um the nitinum for instance what's the barney which represents in the reras what's the barneys which are represented in terms of you know even the adas itself because as we know the adas of first uh, couple of lines of body and come from uh, Dundee Divar and it's so significant that the Adas you know and a lot of people still don't even realize that the Adas is composed of lines from the city doesn't run up so um, it was just very simple ideas which I wanted to kind of just get across in the MA but at the same time had to look at the authenticity kind of issue or question as well and um, from the sources I looked at and this was what we call primary uh, literature, whether that be some early salutes, I didn't go too much into uh, the, the salutes at that particular time, but also secondary literature as well. And obviously the question comes, is this the work of Guru Gobind Singh? Is this uh, the Rajana of, of the, the Guru? Or is it the Kavi's work, et cetera, et cetera, and all these other kind of questions which come or have been coming through the, uh, you know, the, the sidelines for many years. But there was no question in my mind it, during the late 90s when I started in 1997 looking at it uh, and took the MA in 1999 and completed in 2001 that the grant of Guru Gobind Singh which we call the Dasman Pashaka grant also known as the Dasman grant was the Rajna of Sri uh, Guru Gobind Singh Ji. There was no doubt in my mind based on some sources in terms of scriptures, some sources in terms of early kind of etias, and some sources in terms of secondary sources, but also practices as well. But we can talk about practices later. The difficulty level was immense because you've got to remember there was the, in, the in, internet was just in its infancy. Okay, so it's in its infancy. So a scholar learning now compared to then you've got no chance. If you've got 100 people now doing what I did at that time, it was very, very difficult. So the internet was there. There was a couple of sources which I could pick up on and then I realised which Qtava uh, uh, I could actually obtain and get. I, I started get, making contacts with people in India as well at that time as well. And generally, that is how I did this. Uh, if I had the resources now, 
which I had then, then it would be a different kind of product. But at the same time, in a way, I'm glad I didn't have those things because in a way, it made me a better scholar for the future. How do you formulate an argument? How do you look at just a few sources and what conclusions can you draw from that? Even if later on, you may have to change them or modify them, but it's still a finite set of resources for where you can actually come up to a conclusion. So for me, the fieldwork was zero at that particular time, which is completely different to the work I do now. It is completely field work that I do in terms of looking at all the work I do in terms of Sikh history and heritage. So it just shows you, whereas even now, people are not what they call field scholars. Field scholar is someone who will go out there in the field, and I don't mean literally in the field, but will go out there, research information, go to a library, go to another library, go into a village, interview people, speak to people, make 50 phone calls just about one subject. This is what scholarship's all about. None of this internet kind of thing, let me get 20 sources and put a essay together. That is fine if you want to write an essay, but that is not fine if you want to be the, a great Sikh scholar in terms of actually encompassing a vast range of sources to get a complete product. No, fair, fair. Um, so obviously you've done your MA, you've worked through that, you've been introduced to the Dasamgant, you've obviously managed to put your arguments together, your the MA together, you published it in 2001. Now, what, considering obviously this is kind of obviously early on in the days of the internet, um, what was the response to the MA considering, I guess, up until yourself and perhaps Komaru, there hasn't been really a Dasamgant scholar or historian really from the community um, other than perhaps Juggy whose views are sometimes kind of misconstrued depending on who you're talking to. Um, so what was the reaction to your MA when it was published and also what was perhaps your understanding or your view of those who had written about Dustin Grunt prior to you? Okay so the first question in terms of the response well you've got to remember that um, at that particular time you, you know like I said if I was trying to get my head around the subject then others were also so Trying to explain to people what you had done was a, a challenge in itself. So that was the first thing. But what I did was something completely novel. Um, I'd already been working in IT at that particular time and I'd created my own website and I'd uploaded the whole MA in 2001 and had a contact uh, information, etc. And I got, started getting emails from people in India. So one of the first people I got in, con or got in contact with me was Gurbhajan Singh uh, Lamba from the, the editor of San Sabai. And he actually contacted me and said, your work is so great that we need to get you to start doing a lot more work and producing a lot, lot more uh, in the future. So that was uh, from an India perspective. And the word got out in India in terms of what it actually created. In the UK, it's slightly different. It took a lot bit longer for people to recognize what I'd actually done and what I actually achieved as well. Um, you got to remember at the time there was still though it was at the infant well not infancy but there was still the, the decade where uh debates had started and had already been started well the debates some debates started in the early 90s actually and this was the late 90s drop early 2000 uh, so the response was great people were saying yeah it's a great piece of work you've done but they still did not understand it did not understand the level that this ma would do and just to put it in perspective this was the first work in the western world really to look at the city doesn't grant there was a, a, an earlier work by cl uh, ch lowell uh, um, 
relate to the Dasan brother, but he was actually, uh, whilst he's based in America, he'd actually done the work in, in, in India itself. So this was the first work which actually looked at this subject, as you probably aware that, uh, you know, as the Sikh field had grown and, you know, since the 1960s in the UK, America, there was scholars who looked at the Guru Granth Sahib and other facets of the Sikh world. But in terms of the Dasan Granth, this was the first work that's been published. So the response was originally just slow, but it did develop over the period of the early uh, 2000s, basically. Okay. Now, considering the amount of work and effort and time you've put into Dasamgrant, why do you think certain scholars are hesitant to attribute Dasamgrant to Guru Gobind Singh? Like, I, I understand their, I can, I completely understand their arguments and I see their perspectives. I don't necessarily think it holds water. Um, why do you think that's been the case? Is it just being historically accurate in the sense of it it's kind of their argument is kind of it's more likely than not rather than being oh I can 100% say it is or is it just because they haven't necessarily seen the sources or put in the field works um, like yourself into this topic I would go one further and say sitting on the fence is a really easy kind of position to have when it comes to a difficult subject so if I'm writing about it and if my peers or if you think a generation of people are possibly veering on a different side, you can just sit on the fence and say, well, you know, X, Z and Y and therefore, you know, I'm in the middle. So therefore, I don't get any flack from either side, if that makes sense. And that is what a lot of scholars have done. They've sit on the fence and they'll say, well, could be possibly maybe um, or they'll say certain portions of the Barnia represent uh, Guru Gobind Singh Rajana and, you know, the idea is there but yeah quite correctly there's not been that many dozen grand scholars in terms of reading the whole plethora of literature from the time of Guru Gobind Singh to the present day so there's only a handful of people on the planet who really know the sources related to the dozen grand so some people aren't going to stick their neck out and, and put a position but some professors and people who are within university institutions maybe of varying on the side of caution as well. But if you look at the India side, um, Indian scholars have actually, um, from Punjab universities, on one side have actually quite categorically said that uh, the work is a Rajanath Guru Gurmitsi and they have no issue with that. And the debates have got fierce, uh, well, they were fierce during the late 90s, uh, the 2000s, but I think people like to just sort of sit on the fence, really. That's my personal position because it doesn't affect them so they can do and talk about other subjects. Because what you've got to realise is uh, at a certain point in time earlier on in the 90s and 2000s, people put you in two camps. You were either a believer in, in, in the in the Bali or you weren't. And so therefore, you're either, then this even started calling you a Dasam Grant scholar which makes no sense because you're a scholar in in various fields and but my initial field might have been Dasan Grant, but I've branched out to just so many different areas of Sikh history and heritage. So but people like polemics, they like the you know the yin and the yang, the black and the white, because it puts people in groups and unfortunately that is what actually sets people up for either great, either for greatness or either for failure. But uh, personally, I think a lot of people sat on the fence during that time. They're still sitting on the fence now because they don't want to call it. It'll affect their career. It'll forget who represents them, et cetera, et cetera. So that's my kind of bottom line in terms of where some of these scholars sit. Just being devil's advocate then in relation to this conversation, do you also 
perhaps think that it's a conflict of narratives in the sense that you have a religious view or re- religious bias on one hand wanting the Dasmangran to be authentic and the 100% the work of Guru Gobind Singh Ji and then you have the flip side which is kind of a historical narrative in its kind of truest academic sense in that it's kind of looking at the evidence again like putting aside the limitations of the evidence that has been looked at and gathered and all the rest of it but it's almost looking at the evidence and saying well it's more likely than not to have been the work of Guru Gobind Singh Ji um Again, just being devil's advocate. I think, look, you have got those different um, viewpoints and you've got those different ways of interpreting a subject. So, yeah, scholarship, if you look at it in terms of Sikh studies, for instance, yeah, you have to have both sides of the argument. So, therefore, you can try and come up with a conclusion. The religious side, if you look at it, is always going to be about faith or non-faith of something. You're either going to believe it and say, this is the Rachinah Guru Gobind Singh, or you're going to say, based on my limited understanding or the content of the Granth Sahib, here's my conclusion to what I believe. So yeah, there is this tension between the two kind of thought processes. However, the answer is still the same. What are the actual uh, sources for uh, or the praxis of the Bani of Guru Gobind Singh and how's it out, how's it played out? Not necessarily now, but how did it play out from the time of Guru Gobind Singh during the missile period, Ranjit Singh period, and so forth, saw the committee period, which is later 1800s, uh, Singh Sabha period. And unfortunately, not many people can go through that amount of literature or those evidence sources because it's just so vast. And that's why it even took me many years to get to the bottom of it. If I was going to create a great piece of work, whether it's through my MA, the two books, for instance, with Dr. Kamarup Singh, it was a lot of work. And, you know, and most people would not be prepared to even go down that avenue because it's just too difficult. It's a very, very complex subject in terms of researching, not necessarily in terms of understanding. Let me just make that viewpoint very clear. Okay, no, no problem. Just before we move on, then I just want to get your opinion on the work of Dr. Ratan Singh Jaggi, um, and then secondly, the work of Robin Reinhardt. From what I can gather, their arguments seem to be more based in kind of a, a limitation of resource, um, and uh, sorry, a limitation of sources, um, and also a limitation of contextual understanding. Because I think um, some of the conclusions are almost based in a modern day perspective or kind of a modern um, mor- moral sense of what is right and wrong. Just obviously from someone like yourself working in the field and with all of the um, years of putting in the hard work what is your perspective of their works okay let me just make a correction here first in terms of Juggy. dr rutan singh Juggy original work came out around about 62 65 around about that period um, that is when he originally produced his work on the dasam ground and let me tell you the story how this all went out essentially in Punjabi University Patiala, somebody by the name of Dr. Ashtar had already written or done a PhD, and it was called The Poetry of the Dasamgra. Jaggi Saab had also elected to do a PhD after Ashtar, but he wanted to do a positive piece, but they said uh, Ashtar's already done a piece on the Dasamgrath, which is looking at the positive side. So he did his PhD intentionally to look at the negative side because that was the only way he could do a PhD. 
And this is fact because within a year of his MA or sorry, his PhD coming out, he controverts it by saying it is the Rajana of Guru Gobind Singh. The year later, one year later. And so therefore, he the idea there was he looked at, and that's why he only looked at a number of sources. So for instance, he only looked at a couple of sarups and he said, well, you know, uh, there's only, only a couple of sarups, so therefore we can't conclude X, Z and Y. He talked about the Prakash of... Uh, Guru Granth Sahib and Sayyidah Sangrath and made up some kind of, not, there was not even no evidence for what he was trying to say. So he was coming at, I don't think he was even coming about, about it in the right way. His work was just to get himself a PhD. So then eventually he controverted it anyway. And in 1991, just to um, just to make it clear, he actually did the translations of the Dasam Granth Sahib in Punjabi, in Delhi, under the Paivir uh, Gobind Sadan, I think, uh, kind of... Um, organization and in there he's positive about it as well so the idea of Jaggi and his work is a misnomer basically he wasn't even trying to do anything it's just that people picked upon his work because it was negative or in the ante and then his arguments carried through you never see Dr. Rata Singh Jaggi, Jaggi talk about the Dasam Grath he's never done an interview hardly in relation to the Dasam Grath and why is that because he knows what he did Galti in the 60s was exactly that it was a, a different level now turning to um dr robin uh, reinhardt who i have a lot of respect for actually believe it or not because um, i know reinhardt and i knew exactly the way she was approaching the subject she was approaching um approaching the dasal grant and in the way of linguistics okay she's a she deals with languages so she was approaching it from the hindi language okay so even though she talks about authenticity, she talks about other facets of the Barneys. Her specialism is ling linguistics. It's about Hindi poetry. So therefore, she was looking at it from that angle. So therefore, she cannot make that conclusion about authenticity. And even then, she quotes Jaggi as well, which, I, which is the only criticism I can really make about her. But in terms of her actually understanding and talking about Jyotapachyan, that was great. I think that she, she, she puts that on a level in terms of what it represents. Uh, even some of the avatars she talks about, yeah, some of the conclusions look all right to me, but she's still sitting on the fence after all of that, looking at all the information, and which is very interesting because I just mentioned someone called Dr. Um, Ashtar, and he looked at a similar subject. He looked at the poetry of the Dasam Granth, and he was a linguist. He looked at it from a linguistic point of view as well. And he basically said, if I take composition X, if I take composition Y, it's quite clear by the style of the writing, the metaphors that are used, that this is the Rajana of one individual and with one pen. He compared all the different Barneys from the language point of view, Braj Basha, looking at other languages, and that was his conclusion. So I'm a bit miffed as to why Robert Reinhardt couldn't come up with that conclusion based even though she quotes Dr. Ashtar as well. So from my point of view, the two scholars just had different ways of approaching the subject and not necessarily in the right way or coming up with the right conclusions. Fair enough. Okay. No, that's that's really useful to um to to know. Just then obviously moving on, um this kind of brings us just to the last question before we move into the historic evidence and kind of the development of Dasam Granth. Um, is the two conferences, the first one in 2008 and the second in 2016, 
Yeah, so what actually happened was, like you said, what was the development and what was the feedback from the MA? This kind of grew from the MA. I know 2001 and 2008 sounds like seven years, but uh, what happened was that um, the controversy was getting fever pitch. So uh, a group of individuals in America got together and said, well, you know, we need to get some scholars to rebuke some of the accusations in relation to the Barney. I was invited from the UK and I felt really privileged in 2008 to be giving my vijar on the Dasam Grand Sahib. You know, a guy from Leicester, I don't consider myself to be anyone special than anybody else, but to be on the same platform as, you know, ex jatsadars of the Takht Keshkar Sahib. And we had scholars at that time. We had Dr. Rapal Singh Pannu from Punjabi University, Patiala, and, you know, other individuals as well. So in 2008, when I did that, Siri Dasam Grand, that was the first, let me put this in context, it was the first Siri Dasam Grand Sahib conference globally, which looked at different facets of the Grand Sahib. And in that, um, in that conference, I personally still think to this date, that was the first time when I could actually talk about the Surup. So my initial findings from 2001, I'd actually learned about the Surups then as well. So I talked about some of the earliest Surups on the Dasenbrath or in that uh, lecture I gave, talked about the Etias. I even started talking about transmission as well. This is 2008. I'd already come up with the idea of where some of these ideas and concepts were going and where we needed to go and how we educate the public in terms of, you know, what Guru Gobind Singh Rachana actually means. So 2008 for me felt like a milestone in terms of the manuscripts, the historical aspects, the atyas. I think I'd got it to a T in 2008. And that's why I felt that lecture at that particular time uh, was absolutely great. And also to share with the peers. And, you know, I felt really humbled at that particular point in, in my life to actually have shared that knowledge at that time. The idea, like I said, was to combat all the negative connotations. Um, moving on from that, that wasn't the first one. There's been three conferences, actually. 2016 uh, was the other one as well. And um, that was also great as well. It was just talking and getting scholars all on stage and talking about the city doesn't from different perspectives it could like i said um you know you can evaluate the grand side from you know from sarups you can from etias from the time of guru commencing you can talk about praxis you can talk about the relics uh, and artifacts and the transmission so it's great to have a different viewpoint in terms of how you approach the subject so i think those kind of conferences were fantastic and they're all available on youtube as well so it's great for people to go back and actually and listen and watch and see the bajar of all these badwan as well but i think Interestingly, one of my greatest ones, believe it or not, was in 2018, actually, just recently, um, was at Badani Kala in the Punjab, where all the different uh, Sampradaya came together. So we're talking about the Nahangs, Nirmale, Yadassis, even the SGPC were there. And where I gave my Vichar, and the, again, the only person from the UK was called to this massive conference in, in Badani Kala to give my Vichar on Siri Dasam Granth Sahib and how it works in terms of the transmission. So it's a, it a great lecture in terms of uh, how the Dasam Granth has actually propagated itself through relics and artifacts, the Shastas, the Jarainas, and I know you may be going to ask me about that a bit later, but um, 
That was one of my, I think, one of my great lectures, which I gave in 2018. So, yeah, I've always felt privileged. I never thought to myself, you know, what I'm doing is bigger or better than anybody else. I just felt that I need to bring to the table new concepts, new ideas, new ways of thinking, because people look at scholarship from different vantage points. And unfortunately, you have to correct your badwans as well sometimes. And I would say that with the greatest amount of respect. And a case in point is the idea of the buy money sing bead. And I know we won't talk about manuscripts as well, but, you know, in terms of people, there's always been this long, long fallacy that the buy money sing bead was the original bead uh, related to the city of Dustin Grandson. So, you know, you've got to go back and, you know, challenge the people who think they're saying the right things but say in a nice way and present the information whereby you're not just challenging individuals, you're actually embracing and trying to show them PR and saying, well, this is what we think and this is the way that you should approach this subject as well. But like you mentioned earlier on, the plethora of sources, you really have to go to detail in order to understand the subject fully. I think that kind of nicely moves us on to talking about kind of the historic development of Siddhi Dasam Granth and the evidence and the research and everything else that you've you've done in, in your time. Obviously, again, to put the books together, um, you'd, you'd have to have put in a lot of legwork. Um, just before moving into that next section, I just wanted to check, is there anything in particular that you may want to include in this part or just want to go over or anything we've missed out? No, I think uh, the early development was just about actually uh, understanding the sources that we mentioned. It was all about understanding if there is a controversy, what is the controversy? And thirdly, being part of uh, various major conferences where I could outline what I thought was the way to approach the subject as well. So I think that nicely concludes or leads to the next next, uh, question you're going to be asking. Yeah, sure. Okay. There's there's actually just one question that I want to ask, perhaps before we then go through these. Yeah, um, I just wanted to ask, and how did you go from doing your MA, doing your research, to then ending up publishing two books that are entirely based about Dasam Granth? Because I would love to get to know, obviously, the groundwork that that goes into putting such um work together. But secondly, it'd be really interesting for those listening to find out what you had to do, what you came across, in a nutshell, I guess, what the books kind of suggest. Um, and I guess within some of that, I, I know we're going to talk about the historic development of Dustin Grunt in a minute, um, but I guess that kind of lends itself t- to that next section. It's a really good question. I mean, I think what happened was with myself, I was getting emails weekly, daily, and then as the internet was progressing as well, and it was the same questions. It was like, what's the Dasim Rat? What's the Barney is involved in Dasim Rat? You know, concepts about Siri Bhagwati Ji Sahai. Um, and, it was, and it was the same question day in, day out. So a couple of years later, I'd actually met with a researcher called Kamarup Singh, and he had embarked on his MA, uh, sorry, his uh, uh, MPhil, basically, around the same subject. So um, I'd actually suggested to him that um, it would be great to actually write a book called The Question and Answers because it's we're getting the same question, we're getting the same, and the answers are the same. So uh, let's just create a book. So we started uh, working on series of some question and answers. But interestingly, we started also working on the secondary book as well at the same time, which is The Grant of Guru Gobind Singh. Now, the interesting thing was that in terms of the book that we published called the Grant of Guru Gobind Singh Essay, Lectures and Translations, that was pitched to Oxford University Press. 
And what you've got to imagine is that I didn't work at no university. Kumarup Singh didn't work at no university. We're not in no big, massive, influential kind of group that we're getting this book published. And this was all legwork to get our book published with Oxford University Press. And we did this. It's a massive achievement in terms of getting the book published. And I thought it was a great milestone in terms of where we are in terms of the subject. Well, I think the two books were very separate in terms of what they were trying to achieve. The first book, the Q&A, was about literally... Um, the basic questions in even now and you know this as well um, Amar is that this book people still want it to read it even today published in 2011 you know how often people are asking yourself but they're asking me um, unfortunately it was out, it's not out of print but there's only limited copies of it but to this day people are saying I want to read this book because it's a nice introductory guide in terms of you know asking the simple questions which people are still asking today but the secondary book was all about the actual, um, and if I could allow me to say it, the meat on the bone in terms of what the subject's about. What are the original manuscripts? What is the atias? What are we talking about in terms of the prakash of the grants? What are we talking about in terms of, you know, how the, the Dasam grants is proliferated across the world in terms of what it means, not just to uh, the individuals, but with the worldwide view as well. So the secondary book was equally important, but in a different way. So I think um, working with individuals like Kamarup Singh was a great blessing as well. And uh, in a way, it was great. Like I said, in in, in, on, in terms of my hands, I can only count a number of individuals who have really gone into depth on the subject. And therefore, by pooling our resources together was a great opportunity. It was hard work as well. And I'm sure he would say as well, it was difficult. But at the same time, we produce two great books, I think, which actually gets to the crux and leads to the conclusions which we thought were, you know, uh, were really important to actually kind of disseminate to people all around the world. And you've got to remember the book, The Grant of Guru Gobind Singh, Essays, Lectures and Translations, is in university libraries all across the world. So personally, myself, I felt that I've done my justice for Guru Gobind Singh Maharaj in terms of making sure that his Bani is actually protected. And I use that word very cautiously, protected, because no one was protecting the Bani during, if I can use the word, the Dasam Grant Wars. It was almost, it was very polemic. The idea was not to get away, well, was to get away from this polemic debate about, is this the work of Guru, Guru Gobind Singh? Is this not? It was all about the sources. And I think that's what I was trying to achieve. And with Dr. Kamarutsin, but also trying to get my views, thoughts together as well in these projects. Just before we move on into the historic development of Sidi Dasam Grant, uh, it'd just be worth mentioning that we've got the Q&A book on the shop. Um, the Essays Translations um, book is at the moment quite difficult to get hold of, but I think you might be able to get it on Amazon. Um, equally, uh, there's a book review on the Q&A book that you can read as well, um, which I'll share the link to uh, in the description. But anyway, moving on then into the kind of the, the meat of this podcast, which is the historic development of Sidi Dasam Grant. So I'm just going to start with two particular primary sources, recensions, manuscripts um, that... Uh, that we discussed prior to, to this, um, which is the Anandpur bead from 1695. Um, and then the uh, a recension that was sent to Butna Saib dated 1698 um, with handwritten pages 
So could you perhaps then explain in a couple of minutes the physical historical evidence? Obviously, we've just mentioned two, which which we can begin with. Um, uh, and then any others that you've obviously come across during your research? I think the first thing to bear in mind is that um, there's a plethora of manuscripts from the time of Siri Guru Gobind Singh, during the Missal period, Ranjit Singh period, etc., etc. There is this um, idea that there's only a handful of Sarups, there's only four Sarups, which Dabdi was talking about, for instance. There is a plethora of manuscripts, either, let me clarify this, either in the hand or partly in the hand of Guru Gobind Singh Maharaj, the Shaheeds in relation to the Khalsa and other important individuals. And this is fact. This is not even a debate because Ityas also backs up this information as well. So let's start off with the Anantapuri bead, for instance. Firstly, I'd like to say there's hardly anyone on the planet who's even seen the Anantapuri bead. I've been very, very privileged to see the Xerox copies of this surub because it's in a private collection. No one knows where it's at. We try to even find out what actually happened from the last owners of the surub or the custodians. But I was lucky to actually um, study the Anandapuri bead. So firstly, just let me just explain what that bead is and what it represents. Firstly, it's a prototype. It's a work in progress which Guru Gobind Singh had actually started with his govies. And what I mean by that was he'd started writing some of the works and the govies were putting it into shape in terms of a final form. That's why we have should. And let me explain what should means. Should means actual corrections as well. Now, in the field of Sikhi, it sounds very controversial that corrections could be made to Barney's, for instance. And this is not correction in terms of the work, it's correction in terms of how the scribes have actually written it down. So the Rajana, okay, of Guru Gobind Singh would have been orated, the scribes would have tried to have written it, and then what would have happened was they would have actually corrected it because based on their fallacies, they could not correctly um, anticipate or did not have the knowledge at that time to actually comprehend what the Guru Sahib was saying. So an antibody bead is a work in progress bead. So that's why you do have dates such as, you know, nine, sorry, 1695 and 1696, if I remember correctly. And we also have the names of the scribes as well. I think one's Nihal, for instance. And we also have Bhai Haridas. And let me explain who Bhai Haridas was. Haridas Saab was the grandfather of Jasasin Ramgarya. And we talk about Bhai Mani saying, we talk about Baba Deep Singh, but Haridas Saab was one of those missing scribes who's been deleted or not known about, but he wrote recensions of the Guru Granth Sahib, and he was a scribe of this particular uh, Anandpuri bead as well. So it's a very, very important find, which many decades ago I looked into, and I thought, you know, um, this is the kind of research we need. We need to talk about Bhai Haridas. He's written Sarups, which are very hard to find now. But he was at the forefront of not just, uh, or should I say, he was at the forefront of recensions of Guru Granth Sahib and the Dasam Granth as well, which is absolutely interesting because just like Bhai Mani Singh involved in Guru Granth Sahib and Sri Dasam Granth Sahib, and that is what the essence of being described, being in terms of a scholar was about. 
It's not, we deal with one grant, as you would have led to believe in this present day. The scribes, the workers, the individuals, the um, the Gyanis all knew about the knowledge that was there at that particular time. So the Anandpuri bead, in a nutshell, prototype grant, including the the handwriting and the verses, including Jatapakyan in the hand. So there's corrections made by Guru Gobind Singh in his own hand within that bead. And there's something within the bead called Kas Patre. What Kas Patre alludes to is the words and the writings by Guru Gobind Singh in his own hand, Kas Patre, which were included in that bead as well. Obviously, there's some kind of um, a stop and start in terms of how that surah was made, but it is a prototype leading to the formulation of other grants or other variations of the grants. Variations is the wrong word. It's more about leading to a, an established surup, for instance. Now, you mentioned about the Patna Saab surup of sorry, 16. Sorry, quickly, yeah. just before we move on to the Patna Saab bead, I wanted to actually ask you just well, two things. First of all, um, I wanted to ask you, do you think the Anantapur bead, I know you've said you've seen a Xerox copy, but do you think it still exists? Oh, yeah, absolutely. 100%. Okay. And it's... And it's in someone's private collection, but it's very difficult to ascertain where. 100%. I've even got uh, images from that saloon that has been given to me through various... Uh, and this was years ago as well. So we know it exists. We even... And I don't want to go too much into detail as to... Sure. But it, the saloon does exist. And I've even had pictures from the saloon sent to me. Okay. And then the second question, which I... Again, this has just come off the back of the conversation, and this is why I enjoy doing this, which is um, you mentioned that the Anandpur bead had a kind of a distinctive uh, way within which it was made. Now, I've never actually researched or even thought about looking into how um, these grunts were compiled and the kind of the technology behind actually creating the paper and the ink and binding it and everything else that goes with it. Now. I don't know whether you've researched this in your time, and I'm, I'm I'm assuming you have, but could you perhaps explain in like a nutshell what some of the methods were behind actually creating the grunt? Okay, so it's a very important question because there's similarities in terms of how um, Guru Granth Sahib uh, manuscripts would have been compiled. There's uh, other kind of uh, works as well, whether it's by Gurdas, um, or whether it's the work of other individuals as well, even by Nanlal, for instance, as well. Um, and even the Govies, and we can touch upon the Govies a bit later, but the idea was that um, Guru Gobind Singh would undertake his rachana, the scribes would try to actually emulate or understand what the Guru Sahib was saying, and then write this down. The paper in terms of formulation was very, uh, whilst we had the early Guru uh, Granth Sahib's roots. Now, just to put this in context, we're talking about a grant called the Dasam Pashaka grant being written at the same time as the Guru Granth Sahib is being formalized. Let's get this correct so people understand this. The Guru Granth Sahib is still being compiled in the sense that Guru Gobind Singh designates this as Guru designates and adds the Bani of Guru Tegh Bahadur to Guru Granth Sahib. And at the same time, he's writing his own Bani. And I'm not even going to go into the question, I'm not even going to answer it, why Guru Gobind Singh's Bani was not put into the Guru Granth Sahib. It does, that's not even a question, personally. But, so when Guru Gobind Singh is writing his own Bani, 
The paper formulation took place at that time. The scribes were brought in to finalize the Guru Granth Sahib, but at the same time, formalize and start preparing surups in terms of the Dasam Granth and other manuscripts as well. So that's when you start getting this initial, even though it was doing, during the time of Guru Arjun, possibly a bit later than Guru Arjun's time, but the surups start getting um, a bit more elaborate in terms of the sense that um, the calligraphy style is changed. There's certain patterns being put in terms of Jiddah, um, the, the initial folios of the Grand Sahibs as well, especially in terms of the initial folio, uh, folios, if that makes sense. And originally, the Sroops did take on the persona of ideas of the Islamic faith as well, the style, if that makes sense, of, you know, the introductions, for instance, I'm, I'm talking about the style of the Sroops. So, and when we talk about recipes, and let's put this in context as well, in many Sroops, they talk about what kind of ink was prepared, how it was prepared, and what we call in the original, um, we call it contents, but it's not contents, but, you know, in the, in, the, in, the, in the introductions, you get a lot of information in terms of, in some cases, dates, times, scribes, etc. And it's really, really important. But what's even more important is you could have a scribe who's written a Grand Saab, sorry, scribed a Grand Saab, let's just say, in relation to Guru Granth Sahib and he's put a date on it, but the same scribe has also done a surup of the Dasam Granth, but not put a date on it, but because we know he's written X, from that idea we can figure out Y. And this happens quite a lot actually, believe it or not, in Sikh history where we know one scribe is the writer of two grants or three grants, even though there's only one date in one surup as well. So this, the whole subject of writing the sroops is fascinating in itself, which I did take a lot of understanding and a lot of interest in, in my early days, not as much now, but it is a very fascinating subject. And, and again, there's only a handful of people who really know the subject of manuscripts and what they entail and how the history can, be, well, see, history can be developed just on manuscripts itself. It's a, it's a very, very, uh, a very niche subject, but an important subject. Sorry, just quickly before moving on to the Patna Sahib Ascension, I just wanted to ask you, have you come across any other texts or grants that were compiled or, or written during, uh, oh, sorry, at the Dabar of Guru Gobind Singh Ji? Um, in terms of, uh, sorry, that's uh, Grant Sarup, sorry, did you say or no, sorry, I just mean in general. So any other texts? So for argument's sake, I know um, uh, there's like Sanapati wrote Guru Soba. Um, there's other Kavis and, and people who are writing other texts or translating other texts. Um, so I just wanted to get an idea of what, like you may have come across something quite particular and unique. So for argument's sake, the fact that you're one of the very few people on the planet to have seen the Anandapur Bead, let alone it being a Xerox copy. But the fact you've seen it, um, is quite interesting to me. Um, so I just wondered if there's anything quite uh, unique or interesting that you may have come across uh, in relation to texts coming from the Dabar of Guru Gobind Singh Ji. You asked me a question earlier on about development. You asked me a question about what I actually learned. Well, one of the comparisons that I did was look at Govis, okay? The Govis of Guru Gobind Singh who were they and what did they actually write? That was an early part of the development because I felt that 
um, some of the questions which were stated or, or positions were stated was that the Rachna Guru Gobind Singh is by the Kavis. So therefore, I said, well, okay, let's look at the Kavis' work. So I started to look at the work of Kavi Kankan. Bainanlal looked at uh, Kavresh, for instance. You know, we talk about Bhavanji uh, Kavis, so 52 uh, poets of Guru Gobind Singh, but Bhavanja Kavi means, you know, 52. But really, if you look at the work of uh, Bihara Singh Padam, we're talking about 125 scribes and kavis from that particular time period. So what I looked at was what is available at that particular time. So if we look at um, the works like the Hitopadesha, the Upanishads, Mahabharata, which were actually written in the court of Guru Gobind Singh, what do we actually establish? And not just from three, these three texts, but other texts as well. We can draw some important conclusions. The Kavis had actually, many of them had actually been serving at the court of Aurangzeb, for instance. They'd been banished from there because they, uh, Aurangzeb at that time had actually wanted people to convert. So many Kavis, including Bainalad, had actually moved from the court of Aurangzeb, a very important facet showing how important Guru Gobind Singh was at the time of Aurangzeb, a very powerful emperor. And there we have uh, Guru Gobind Singh here challenging this ideal, these norms and ideas. And the Kavis want to flock to his court, the Darbar at Bodha Saab, for instance, the Darbar at Anandpur Saab, for instance. Actually, that's just mind-boggling in itself. But if we look at his works, but also the other thing to bear in mind is some Kavis were inherited. People do not understand that some of the Kavis attached to the Darbar of um Guru Gobind Singh were inherited from the Darbar of Guru Tegh Bahadur Sahib as well. So there's this actual dual duality taking place. But going back to your question in terms of the works, firstly, what we find is in the Kavi's work is they actually do not say or do not use a word like, uh, it, well, they use the word maybe Ikam God, but they do not say Ikam God, why would you give for instance? They talk about Sri Ganesha. They talk about the, the Devte and the Devis as their Mangla Jaran. Very important point. So whilst we talk about Sri Bhagavatiji Sahai in certain compositions, they're talking about Sri Ganesha. They are praising their Hindu deities first, writing the text, and within the first portion or at the end, they are actually quite categorically stating that we have written this within the court of Guru Gobind Singh. And, and, the, and we are praising Guru Gobind Singh for giving us this opportunity because Guru Gobind Singh, what he's trying to do is actually create a legion of not just uh, saint soldiers, but learners in various types of information, whether it's, uh, you know, but like I said about Upanishads, we're talking about different types of Rajniti. And these poets, these Gavis were paid more than the actual, um, the soldiers. For me, that is actually the most indicative statement to actually say that if you, as a Sikh, is not a learner, then you are actually going against what Guru Gobind Singh is actually talking about. He created this darbar, he created these symposiums of um, discussing literature, the world literature as well, not just Indian literature, or Persian literature, or Eastern world literature and discussing it and talking about this. And the Kavis had created this amount 
or work, which even to this day is surpassed in terms of not understanding what they wrote and what it's all about. We have missed a trick of what Guru Gobind Singh was saying because we focus too much on, and quite rightly, we we should do on Barney, but we do not understand the physical, the political, the spiritual uh, basis of what the court was about because what he's trying to do is say these writings are important in themselves but as within the city doesn't run sab what guru sab does he reinterprets all these myths these ideas the ideas of Dundi, krishna and brings them to a fore but at the same time he's saying to all these individuals if you have a great book if you have a great story you need to come to my bar and you need to show me what this literature is about just going back to you mentioned that um, there's almost a common assumption that it's 52 poets. Where does this kind of idea come from? And why is 52 attributed to so many kind of elements in Sikh history? I'm assuming there's some association or some reason behind the number 52. But how come that's kind of banded about so much? with everything in Sikh history later on, I'm not talking about early period, I'm not talking about between 1700 and 1800, I'm talking about a lot later, concepts in numbers start to formulate in themselves. You know, we talk about the five Ks, for instance, for instance, and Banj becomes a very important factor. Bhavanja also becomes a factor as well. And what happens is it's almost like trying to equate a number so therefore it becomes, re- um, it becomes popular. But like I mentioned earlier on, manuscript history, the development of manuscripts throws these concepts out the way sometimes. And it challenges sometimes what other individuals are trying to portray. So, for instance, uh, if we are talking about Bhavanjikavi, it's, it's, been, it's there in literature all the time, Bhavanjikavi all the time. It's simply not true <laughs> if, because it's a common concept, but common concepts do not um, meet with the actual groundwork at that particular time. Maybe the individuals at that time did not know. But for me, it's always about if it, if it challenges um, certain atiyas in a certain point in time, well, that's what it is, basically. There's, we should not mince our words, and unfortunately, the problem with our garm has always been, if it's something difficult, let's sweep it under the rug or let's pretend it didn't happen or doesn't exist because it's too complex to actually kind of explain. And I think that's a very bad indictment of the way we live. No, fair enough. I just then wanted to ask you another thing, which is you mentioned that um, some of the scholars would invoke Hindu deities, etc. Now, just from your understanding and your research, what are your uh, perspective, what is your opinion on kind of the religious boundaries or the religious construction at that time? Because obviously there's work like Khaja Oberoi, which kind of indicates that this, it was far more syncretic and kind of um, less communal, I guess is an easy way of um, kind of uh, putting it into a nutshell but from the research that you've done and your your understanding what would your opinion be of kind of the landscape at the time well okay so you gotta remember from the time of guru nanak what is going on in the sikh faith the idea is you're living in a construct of 
faith which is based on Indic, I don't maybe not use the word Hindu, but Indic cosmologies in terms of, you know, what the ground level understanding of Dharam is about, for instance. So we're talking about, and again, we use sources in terms of, um, you know, what the deities of that time was, whether it be Krishna, Jandi, uh, and others. But at the same time, we have, we have a situation where India and Pakistan, you know, subcontinent is under Islamic rule as well. So you have Islamic concepts coming in there as well. So from the time of Guru uh, Nana all the way through to uh, Guru, um, Guru Ajandev and Guru Hargobind or up to the time of Guru Gobind Singh, there's all these challenges which are meted out in terms of what Bani represents. So when we get to a point where the Kavis are writing as well, there is this challenge as to what this information represents to the common person. So the common person looks at the Sikhs and, and it, some may think of it as an anomaly and thinking, well, how is this different from what we have already seen? Is the Sikh concept a sect? And I know the word sect is a very Western concept, but you've got to remember that in in India at that time, there was different denominations of all faiths at that particular time. So what Guru Gobind Singh is doing and trying to challenge is the established order at that time. The established order of Khande Depol or, you know, making someone a Khalsa did challenge it because prior to that time and what happened was at the time of the Shahidi of Guru Tegh Bahadur Sahib was that uh, individuals were a visible force even though Guru Hargobind Sahib had also had battles with the Mughals okay which many people still don't dwell on because they don't really know but in terms of a established order in terms of what represented the Sikh was actually in relation to the Shidi of Guru Tegh Bahadur Sahib but also understanding and bringing the concepts and ideas to a level where individuals from any faith could seem to understand what Guru Sahib is talking about. So, for instance, in Patita Natak, he's talking about Apnikata and he's trying to reinterpret the cosmology of faith. All the different Dandibanis, uh, Krishna Avtar, Rudra Avtar, all these other uh, concepts. He's trying to tell them, do tell them as in the populace, do not look at your Chandi, your Krishna, as being the person which you just believe in. Because the Hindu faith at that particular time was on its knees. You know, there's mass persecution taking place under you know the Islamic uh, faith under Aurangzeb at that particular time. And what Guru Gobind Singh was saying. If you believe in Jandi, believe in the concept of the warfare of Jandi, believe in the concept of Krishna in terms of what the war aspects are about. He was drawing out certain portions which could apply to individuals to where the masses had completely were down on their knees. This idea of Sansabai was a very, very, not unique in the world level in terms of like duality, but unique at that time because for people to actually have the Bani of Guru Granth Sahib, the Siddha Sam Granth recited in terms of you have to become a Khalsa and the stirring of the sword, you know, and the Patashas being put in, etc. It was very novel and people did not understand it even at that time as well. It took time for people to have an idea of what the Khalsa means after trying to impart, uh, you know, this world level. Now, you talk and mention about Oberai. Oberai talks about fluidity later on. He talks about it in the late 1800s. What Guru Gobind Singh is trying to do is and say there is that fluidity 
And also, what he's also saying is that, um, yes, we want everyone to be Khalsa, but different orders are still allowed to live and be allowed to actually um, live side by side because it will take certain time for people to understand what I'm trying to achieve. This idea of everyone becoming Khalsa in 1699 and other years is simply not true. It takes a millennia of time, individuals for everyone to become or think from a certain point of view, even from the time of Guru Nanak to Guru Gobind Singh was a millennia, if that makes sense. So um, I think that fluidity was there. The fluidity was there during the uh, missile periods. The fluidity was definitely there during Ranjit Singh's period and it continued. It was only this idea of a fixed construct during the time of Singh Sabha and the SGPC. Yeah, no, I wouldn't disagree whatsoever. Um, another question that is just off the back of something you alluded to was the fact that Guru Gobind Singh Ji's Darbar had covies that had been inherited from Mataji's father, Guru Tegh Bahadur Ji. Now, just then following that a little bit further from your research, where does that kind of lineage of... Uh, where does the lineage of patronizing literature um, start with within kind of the Sikh setup? In fact, it actually starts during the time of Guru Arjun Dev, actually, believe it or not, because he also had scribes and individuals. Uh, Govis is probably maybe different at that time because it was more about uh, solidifying the faith as well. So we can't say with certainty that there was lots of Govis. But what we do have is the Tadi Darbar. So we have the Tadis which are trying to explain the concept of Sikh faith um, through their eyes. But we start the development of during the time of Guru Arjan Dev. Siri Hargobind Sahib maybe a little bit, but definitely under the, under the duration of uh, Guru Dev Bahadur Sahib because it's all about understanding and getting individuals on board of what the final result would be. So there is that small development, but I think during the time of Guru Gobind Singh, it gets to his head because of the fact that in Bordar Sahib, when he gets to Bordar Sahib, he's trying to say, "Less, I want to create this symposium of individuals. I want to make my Darbar as being a kingship because in the spiritual sense, all right, fair enough, we have kings, we have queens, we have courts as well, because that's the way life is during that time and even now. But what Guru Gobind Singh is saying is, I want to impart art education and I think it was the end result of the other gurus as well. We give credence to Guru Gobind Singh in terms of actually giving that opportunity to all this vast amount of literature that was created during the time, but definitely it was a, a gradual development. Okay, no, fair. Um, just then moving back to uh, the manuscripts and the primary sources that we were discussing, about So the second one that we had mentioned earlier was the Patna Sahib Recension that's dated 1698 again with handwritten pages from Sri Guru Gobind Singh Ji. So again, just in a nutshell, kind of what can you tell us about that? Well, the important bit is that uh, there's more than one Surub at Patna Sahib. And this is where some scholars have made a mistake because they started talking about a specific Surub at Patanasa, but not realizing which Sroop they're talking about. So there's been several Sroops um, from an early period at Patanasa. There's actually one dated 1698, one not dated, but exactly in the same style as well. So it's not just one Sroop, we're talking about several 
possible sarups from that time period. And essentially, um, it's almost like a final, well, we can call it a finalized version of the sarup of the Sri Dasam Granth Sahib. And yes, in that particular sarup, it did have handwritten pages or what we call Khas Patre of Sri Guru Gurbind Singh in that sarup. And just to put in context as well with the Anandpuri beard as well, there was Khas Patre in that sarup as well. And in other sarups, so this idea of finding the Hatlikta and certain pages was a later development because it seems like um, there's this always been this story in terms of when Guru Gobind Singh was crossing the river Sarsa, that all the Rajana of Guru Gobind Singh, the Kavis all fell in the river. And it's a very predominant view, but it's simply not true. <laughs> because we have Sarups of Guru Gobind Singh, we have Sarups of the Kavis. What we do have this idea is that the Vidya Sagar, okay, there's this whole idea that there was another surup being created which incorporated uh, the Bani of Guru Gobind Singh, the Kavis, called the Vidya Sagar, that was lost. And there's a possibility that could have happened um, at that particular time, but it wasn't the Siri Dasam Granth which was lost during that time. So the Patna Sahib surup is important. There's other surups as well. There's a Pai Deya Singh of 1698 as well, and that's you know, kept in Aurangabad. And there's many other surups as well from that particular time period or a bit later, including the Bai Mani Singh bead uh, from 1713. And again, you know, people like to nitpick and say, well, this Barney's not there, this Barney's not here. It's, what we're talking about is very negligible in terms of what the differences are. No, fair enough. Just then moving on to the other manuscripts or recensions that you may have come across. Just uh, another one that I noted down from um, scanning through the Q&A book was the Bai Deya Singh recension of the Dasam Granth. Um, again, if you could just, in a nutshell, tell us a little bit more about that. Well, what's interesting about that, Sarub, is that there is the Zafar Nama within that Sarub is actually a very, very nicely decorated. Okay, so within that Sarub, um, because as you probably know, by their saying was the individuals who actually had to present the Zafar Nama to uh, on, uh, Emperor Aurangzeb. So that was the reason why Bai Deya Singh has a sarup uh, connected with him, for instance. So that's the importance of that sarup and the, the actual design and the colorful elaboration on the Zafar Nama within that sarup is absolutely beautiful. It's a really, really great kind of thing to see and just shows you what uh, calligraphy again at that time was about so it's a really really important route but uh, just adding something additional just talking about um, the caste butler which I think is really really important is that um, when we talk about Jata Bakyan and individuals stating that Jata Bakyan is not the Rachna Guru Gobind Singh what we find is that <laughs> it was only several years ago that a sarup of the Jirtapakyan in the hand of Guru Gobind Singh Maharaj was found. It's mentioned briefly in the essays, uh, sorry, say the Granth Sahib, sorry, uh, the Granth of Guru Gobind Singh essay lectures and translations uh, book. And because we only had limited information, but since that time, what happened was a sarup of the Jirtapakyan was found. And now it's still there to inspect at a Taktikeshka Sahib, for instance. So it does exist in the hand of Guru Gobind Singh and other folios, for instance, as an example, like we're talking about the, um, 
the Anandpuri bead and other sarups have had the rachana of Guru Gobind Singh or the Khas Patre combined with these sarups. So it's really, really important. And I want to actually just touch upon a little story as well, which is related by Money Singh as well. Because I don't know if you're aware, but there's this gitti that was actually banded about uh, by many groups saying the gitti of Bhai Money Singh talking about finding the baniya of the city Dasam Grand Saab is an important letter. I don't want to go into the textual details of the letter, but basically what he was doing was he was communicating to some individual called Bhai Shia Singh, okay, where the matas of Guru Gobind Singh were residing in Delhi. And the idea was that um, the Sarups of Sri Dasam Granth were already created in 1698, for instance, and then by adding the Zafranama, they were added on. But the the, the Khas Patre may have been lost. Okay, lost, not destroyed. Okay, there's a difference here. Lost. And these Khas Patre, which is what Bai Mani Singh was communicated to an individual by Shia Singh in Delhi, was what he was trying to establish and trying to find, and which they did eventually find. And these, which, which I believe, as a caste patri, which are found in various other recensions in the various groups of the city, Dasam Granth Sahib as well. So it's a very, very important point because if you go to uh, the Samads of, of the Mata of um, Guru Sahib, he actually even talks about Pai Hiya Singh, um, finding and working with Pai Mani Singh on the groups of the city, Dasam Granth Sahib, and that's in Delhi as well. So this connection about Sarup does exist in Atiyas and even to this present day. No, thank you for that. Just then, obviously, because we've been talking about um, early manuscripts, are there any others that you've come across that are worth mentioning and just explaining? I mean, there's this connotation that um, when the Sarups were either created by Guru Gobind Singh or other Shahids, whether it be Baba Banod Singh, we have a Sarup related to Baba Banod Singh, no longer extant, for instance. Um, we can talk about the missile period in terms of Baba Deep Singh, and we have a Sarup related to Baba Deep Singh, which is in um, uh, Damdama Saab as well. So they exist even to this particular day, but there's a very significant Sarup from around about the early 1700s, which was sent to Afghanistan as well. And that's very important. It's no longer extant, which means we do not have it now. But Dr. Gandha Singh, you know, great researcher, talks about seeing that Sarup in Afghanistan. So, you know, the early period during the early 1700s is surmounted with X amount of Sarups, which either existed or do exist to this day. So there's fragments of compositions which still exists. So therefore, we can ascertain the development of Dasam Bani from that time. We can ascertain that it was a proliferation. Let's get this right. The idea that Dasam Sarup did not exist during the time of Guru Gobind Singh or later is simply not true. We have extravagant amount of uh, recensions from that particular time and later on as well, because the scribe's work was that. So if we talk about Bai Mani Singh, Baba Deep Singh, we talk about Bai Shia Singh, we talk about Bai uh, um, Haridas, which I mentioned, which you know, he never gets that light. There is several individuals who can be associated with Sarups of the city, doesn't run up. Okay, no, yeah, I was obviously asking um, about early copies, early recensions, which I think we've explored quite nicely. Um, Justin, perhaps getting your um, perspective on this which is how did the Dasam Granth, I guess you've alluded to it previously but how did the Dasam Granth develop historically and are there parallels with how the Sri Guru Granth Sahib was developed? 
It's a really important question and possibly not easy to actually answer because there's various theories in terms of how Guru Granth Sahib, Sri Guru Granth Sahib was actually created as a great piece of, of Bani, basically. Um, there's a money... Um, mother theory of manuscripts which is one manuscript leads to another manuscript leads to another manuscript or there's certain manuscripts which create and develops to a finalized form um i think there's some similarities which i talked about but there's certain dissimilarities as well because we talk about Bhai Gurdas as being a scribe of Guru Granth Sahib for instance um i think with Das and Bani it was work in progress so if one of the earlier Bani's is Jaap Sahib for instance and you talk about uh, and asking about an early manuscript and we have an early manuscript of Bajit, uh, sorry of Jaapsav and Bajitanatak for instance and they're just um, specific manuscripts but what we tend to find is that I think the development of the Kavis was slightly different to what actually happened with the Guru Granth Sahib and, and again what you got to remember is it was Guru Gobind Singh which finalised Guru Granth Sahib and the city doesn't grant up as well so he was the finalizer of both grants in that time period so even he had to actually look at the bani of gurudev sahib go remember that the those early sarups which incorporated the bani of gurudev bahadur earlier than what people think so the traditional dates in terms of when it all happened but what i'm trying to allude to is I think the development of Das and Bani was slightly different to the way Guru Granth Sahib had actually developed. But it's not a good thing or bad thing or right thing or a wrong thing. It's just the way it developed. But what we have to remember is that during the time of Guru Gobind Singh, he probably had more support and more individuals who were at his disposal to try and get the end result. Okay, just continuing that then, what are the themes of the Dasam Granth and how do they harmonize or connect to the themes of the Guru Granth Sahib Ji? Well, I've always felt that um, we have this concept of Mirikbiri, okay, developed during the time of Guru Nanak and formalized later on as well. We have this concept of Sant Sabai, okay, Saint Soldier. So the idea of the Guru Grantsa being Shantabani, okay, okay, and then we talk about the Dasam Grantsa being in terms of the Marshal Bani, we have it's in connaissance with uh, Sansabai, okay, Miri Bidi, Sansabai, it all leads to the same kind of ideals of what the Gurus were trying to do. So if we talk about Shant, if we talk about meditation, we talk about essence being in tune with the Kalpurk in terms of the Guru Granth Sahib, the Dasam Granth is, has similarities but dissimilarities as well. Because the idea about the Dasam Granth is exactly what I was alluding to earlier on. He's trying to teach the common populace that, you know, we do have concepts like Jab Sahib, okay, whereby, and again, you may ask me this question about Shasta Vidya, but Jab Sahib is about the martial essence of how we live our lifestyle. It's still very spiritual, but it has that martial quality. We talk about, <coughs> we talk about, but which is totally different because it's historical. Apani Kata, okay, Apani Kata, okay, so Bachamo, which is about, I am now reciting my history in terms of my history, in terms of my development. So it's a first-hand account of what Guru Kasab is saying in terms of where he comes from. That's really important. So you have different themes and the themes can be split up 
in terms of uh, also spiritual bodies as well. So we have Savaiya, for instance, we have Jops, or even though there's duality in that. But at the same time, we also have the martial Bani as well, which we're talking about in terms of Shasta Narmala, for instance, portions of Krishna Avtar and various other Banis. But the important one which people miss is Sansar Mabani, which is about the worldly Bani, which is Jirta Bakyan. And the interesting thing is, if we look at a text called Sikhandi Bhagatmala, attributed to Bhai Mani Singh, that is the text which gets to the core of what the Siddhi Dasam Granth Sahib is about. And in one of the Sakis at that time, what Bhai Mani Singh is saying is that the Sangat is asking the question, what do we make of the Siddhi Dasam Granth Sahib? And he's actually saying exactly that. He's saying the Guru Granth Sahib is about Sant Sabai, sorry, about the Sant Bani, and um, Siddhi Dasam Granth is about Sabai and the merging of the two. So the idea is we are trying to make the saints into soldiers. And he's talking about the Bani being martial, and he's talking about um, Sansar Mebani in terms of it being Jatopakyan being a worldly Bani. We've got to remember, this is in the early text. So the idea of Bani Mani Singh putting into context what the Bani meant was really, really important. And, you know, like I said, uh, Scholars may disagree with terms of dating, but it puts into context as to what the different types of Bani are represented within the Siddhi Dasam Granth Sahib. And we can't look at it in the same vein as the Guru Granth Sahib because it's written in, in a different language as well. We talk about Braj Basha, for instance. Whilst it's written in Gurmukhi, in text, it's Braj Basha. And people ask the question, well, what's Braj Basha about? And again, what we have to recognize that Guru Gobind Singh Basha was born in Patanar Sahib. He had a vast range of learning in different languages as well. So that's one aspect to it. But at the same time, if you can compare certain portions of Siddhi Dasamrath, it's in conversation with the Guru Granth Sahib as well. So, you know, you can look at certain portions and they equate to uh, the Guru Granth Sahib. For instance, whilst we talk about the Chavis of Dar, the 20 of Dars of, of Vishnu, for instance, but Guru Gobind quite categorically states that he only believes in 10, which is the concept of Guru Granth Sahib as well. So there's X amount of ideas which are in connoisseurs, but there's a kind of change because the change is in the mindset for the future as well. So I think there's a myriad of themes um, which is contained in the series of Samran Saab. And again, it's for the learner to actually understand and actually understand and see why Guru Saab was trying to do this. We unfortunately have this lens of living in this uh What's the word? Living in this um, environment, or if you're living in the UK, or an environment in India, whereby you're looking at it of, of a lens which is within a modern period. You're not looking at the Bani within that time period, what the Guru Sahib is trying to do with the modern populace, trying to make saints into soldiers, and, you know, try to appeal to the common people, which is which is the key thing of what Sayyidina Samran Sahib is about. Obviously, continuing with Dustin Grant, um, we've obviously, we've spoken about early recensions, manuscripts, um, early grants. Obviously, the Nandpur bead perhaps being kind of the most talked about. Um, are, what other ways were or was the Dustin Grant propagated? It's a really good 
Great question. And again, talking about the development of, um, so it doesn't run sub. What I was trying to do when I was formulating ideas and concepts was not just necessarily the manuscripts, but also how does the Dasmuras get disseminated? Okay, so how does the people know about the Bani of Guru Gobind Singh? So firstly, what we have is we have the Sarubs, which you mentioned. We talk about the Bani, which was recited during the time of Amat Sajjad, for instance. And also, we have a third concept, which many people did not pay attention to for decades until I think I came up with this idea of transmission. So how do we transmit Bani through other sources? And I came up with this idea of Sikh relics and artifacts as well, because I've been doing this for nearly two decades now in terms of how Sikh relics and artifacts actually are employed to send a message. So let's just take um, arms and armor, for instance. Let's just take something called a jarena. Jarena is a Persian word for four mirrors, which is basically four uh, plates, front, back, and to the side as well. One particular plate we know about is kept in the Toshkana of Captain Amarinda Singh. And this was one of the first relics which I thought, okay, it's really important to actually get to the crux of because it incorporates the Bani of Guru Granth Sahib and Sri Dasam Granth Sahib. So we have Chakji Sahib, we have Jaap Sahib, we have another Bani from Guru Granth Sahib and we have Akalostas as well. So the key idea is that there's a merging of, you know, like I mentioned, you know, if we're talking about Amrath Sanjad, we have this idea of Barnis from both grants being incorporated. And on the breastplate of Guru Gobind Singh, yes, quite categorically, it belonged to Guru Gobind Singh, is the same concept. And we also have these facets of actually Guru Gobind Singh trying to tell people the Barney is my protector as well. The Barney will protect me in warfare. So that's why he's wearing um, this particular Jarena. We know this uh, Jarena was worn in the Battle of Bagani South, for instance. We have within his Bani, within Bajeta Natak South, that he talks about, um, you know, the deer hitting the breastplate. So these are all information and concepts which are really, really important. So if we talk about specifically Jarena, that's a breastplate. Then we can also talk about other things like the swords as well. We have Sivai Gujiki Fateh being put on the swords. And I'm going to talk about Shatanamala in a second. But so arms and armor is where Sayyidasan Bani was propagated because it's martial, it's warfare. So that was one idea. Another concept was Tabar Patre. Now, this was really fascinating for me when I was studying how propagation takes place is that. Uh, Guru Sahib, as you probably know in terms of writing, and we talked about Sarups earlier on, is how do you propagate information? And interestingly, copper plates or Tabar Patre was very popular in India at that particular time as well. So Guru Sahib had actually created in his own hand or got scribes to write things on copper plates. So for instance, if you talk about Nena Devi, which is very much associated with Guru Sahib, there's a signature copper plate of Guru Gobind Singh in Nena, Nena Devi. You can even see this today. Now, there's another plate uh, at Guru Kshetra, which was lost. The third plate is more important and is related to an area called Kapal Mochan. And it's um, on the trajectory of Bordasab, 
and coming down. And at Kapu um, Mochan, Guru Saab was actually telling the individuals and the custodians at that particular time and giving them patronage as well. So what people do not understand is that the Guru Saab was about all people, whether they be Hindu, Muslim, whatever. And the custodians in Kapu Mochan were given a hukam nama, okay? They were given hukam nama in a copper plate with the verses which come from Tadi Divad, which is the Ardas, and it was given to the custodians at Kapu Mochan. The concept being that the words which I'm writing as part of the Ardas is the concepts that you have to take on board in order to make yourself spiritual. There's a huk, another Hukam Nama also there in relation to the Ardas as well. So the idea of Dasambani being proliferated at an early stage was done at that particular time, whether it be on jarinas, weapons, copper plates. But I thought this was really, really important because what people missed was they were talking about the Tiyas, they were either talking about the Sarubs, but I thought I would take it into another direction. And that's why my organization, the Sikh Museum Initiative in 2016, we created a 3D version of the Jarena of Guru Gobind Singh in 3D. And you can go to the website www.anglosikhmuseum.com and you can see the Jarena of Sri Guru Gobind Singh in terms of in situ and in terms of what it looks like, because no one has ever seen that uh, Jarena, for instance. So the idea of dissemination is more about various facets. And remember, the secondary to that is the Hukam Nama as well. So the Hukam Namas of Guru Gobind Singh or attributed to Guru, uh, Guru Gobind Singh has the verses in relation to uh, Dasambani or talks about the recitation of Dasambani as well. Whereas Baitaya Singh's, uh, sorry, Reit Nama, for instance. So I think there is enough evidence from that early period of how dissemination of the city Dasambani took place. Just going back to the uh, body armor, I just wanted to dig into how you've linked it or how, like, what is the evidence or the provenance of the armor in order to prove it is Guru Gobind Singh Ji's? Okay. So at this particular time, the Jarena is kept within uh, the Toshkana of Captain Amarinda Singh in Patiala. At the time when uh, Patiala was being formed, Guru Saab had a great affiliation to the forefathers of the Patiala family, going back to Baba Allah Singh and even before that as well. And various chastas were given to the Patiala family at that particular point. So their recollection and information is that we have a number of uh, Sikh relics and artifacts which are given to them from the Guru Gobind Singh, and which is true, they have a instruction in the handwriting of Guru Gobind Singh. They have the Jarena, they have other objects as well. But like I said, the key concept of the Jarena being real is in the Bajatanata, because with the war at, in the Battle of Pagani Saab, he talks about a deer hitting the Jarena, and guess what? Lo and behold, there is a spot where the deer has actually gone through the Jarena as well. So they're the instances where we can equate the Jarena with Guru Gobind Singh. And I have no disagreement in my mind of that Jarena being in relation to Sri Guru Gobind Singh, being part of the Tiyas, 
And if we look at it in terms of Patiala and their tias as well, it all marries up. No, fair enough. Thank you for um, including that. It's obviously quite interesting to to hear about it. Um, just then moving on kind of chronologically we've spoken about early evidence we've spoken about the armor of Guru Gobind Singh Ji we've spoken about say for arguments like the Anandpur Bead um, moving then into kind of the missile period and then obviously the reign of Maharaj Jeet Singh Ji what evidence is there to show how Dasam Granth is utilized or transmitted during those periods? Well what we have is this period of well the missile period is fascinating i know you alluded to just something alawali earlier on and believe it or not for the last several years i've been working on the missile period itself but i don't want to digress in terms of missile period and the series doesn't run south but ideally what we had was that the buddha dal let's get this put this in constant in in um an idea in people's minds what we had was the warriors of Guru Gobind Singh the idea of propagating to not just Tarang, the Khalsa was by the Buddha Dal okay what does Buddha Dal mean Buddha Dal was the fifth roaming takht okay we'll talk about takht in a second but the idea of these sarups were always kept within the Dal Panth okay very very important because we talk about sarups being lost you know people you know, people, uh, battles and things being destroyed. But the sroops were always kept within the Buddha Dal. So the sroops were always there. But what happened was they've been misplaced or they've moved from, from region to region. So in terms of one sroop that we know about, and it's um, related in our particular books as well, is a sroop called the Patna Missile Sroop, and it's dated 1765. Uh, yes, it's quite of a different age and a different gap between the earlier Sroops, but what you have to recognise is that there was turmoil as well during the early infancy of the missiles as well, during the time of Nubhav Kapoor Singh, just as in Alawalia. So the 1765, we refer to as the Patna Missile Dasamrat, is again the original or the initial folio has some elaborate kind of um, idea of what the Sarup's about. And also during that time is we have Baba Deep Singh as well, which we know had been uh, creating this Guru Kikashi, this concept of having a learning school at Dumdamasa. So the Sarup's uh, related to Baba Deep Singh, and I mentioned earlier on, the one Sarup is at, even now at Dakht. But more importantly, the Shahidi missile, if we can call it that, um, of Baba Deep Singh also had other scribes as well. There's another surub related to Jeet Singh, which is from the Shahidi missile. And again, that, as far as I know, and I'm going to have to check, my memory might be out of phase here, still exists as well. But there is uh, allusion to that surub as well. So there's various other surubs during the time of the missile period. Uh, they talk about uh, Sroops disappearing during the Vodagulagara, which is the bigger holocaust which took place but at the same time Sroops were kept in, cus um, in custody as well and also during the latter half of City Dasam Grand Sroops and, and Guru Grand Sam Sroops as well they were proliferated but at a lower level because of the fact of the of the fact that they're being warfare at that particular time if we now move to the area of Maharaja Ranjit Singh, it takes a different turn because we have now stability 
Um, and also he subdues various missiles as well. Now, what people don't understand is that when you subdued the missiles, you also subdued what they own as well. So he may have taken Versarub's um, relics and artifacts from the different missiles as well. And they would have been incorporated in his Darbar. But what Ranjit Singh did was he also patronized Kashmiri um, scribes to actually create recensions of Siri Guru Granth Sahib and Siri Dasam Granth Sahib as well. So we start getting another style or version of the Sarups by the Kashmiri uh, um, uh, scribes and other individuals as well. So the proliferation just takes on another turn during the time. But also something to bear in mind is that Akali Singh, who's there at that time as well, he ensures that uh, the Gurdwaras have um, the Brabal, um, we call it Prakash as well. So Guru Granth Sahib and Sayyid Daskamrath in Prakash all over Amritsar as well during that time. So it was just emerging of what was taking place within a peaceful time period. And people think and look at swoops of all Albani and look at them in a certain context. But, you know, we have evidence. We look at the Ibrat Nama, um, which talks about swoops of Guru Granth Sahib and the city Dasam Granth being carried on elephants. Okay, let's get this right on elephants during the time of Maharaj Ranjit Singh and the idea being that these are equals. That is what Maharaj Ranjit Singh is trying to portray. And there's nothing to say that it wasn't. There's no evidence to say that. In fact, it was the other way. The patronage was there in terms of many troops being created during that time period. And interestingly enough, and funnily enough, troops created during the time of Maharajit Singh was sent to the kings and queens of England in the early 1800s. And they still exist today in the British Library. No, that's really interesting to know. I wonder also, well, we'll get into how some of them ended up um, in the British Library a, a little bit later on, because I know you know a lot about that. But um, just before we move on to that, you alluded to kind of the protocols regarding the Prakash of Dasam Granth um, and, and again you used some evidence there to, to, to elaborate on that I just wanted to kind of open that up a little bit more and ask you is there like what else have you come across in relation to the kind of I guess what people would say the Maryada of Dasam Granth or the protocols of Dasam Granth just, just over history not perhaps necessarily at any point in particular although I'm sure um, you will point at its historic development and how perhaps the Prakash changed and developed. Obviously, the biggest um, change coming with the Singh Sabha. Um, however, let's perhaps just leave the Singh Sabha to one side. Up until that point, what is or what are the protocols, the Maryada, so to speak, around the Prakash and just in general um, around the Sangrant? I personally don't think there was any kind of distinct, distinguishing features in terms of Guru Granth Sahib and Siri Dasam Granth from this early time period. Like I said, the Bani of Siri Dasam Granth Sahib was created during the time of the formulation of Guru Granth Sahib. So individuals at that time, the, the Sangat, everyone would have been aware of what the Bani was about. So therefore, what we have is this concept from an early time period of this equation. Yes, we do have um, 
the Red Name, we have Praxis, which talks about Guru Granth Sahib being given the final formation. And we believe in the idea of having faith in Guru Granth Sahib. But at the same time, evidence also suggests, and we can even look at, I know it's of a later time period of Panth Prakash, for instance, talking about um, even during the time of Banda Bahadur, of Bhutis being given to Banda Bahadur and then being taken to Ayusa, for instance, and examples like that. But the point I'm trying to make is that if we look at uh, literature like Bansabli Nama, okay, Gishal said Jibbar, uh, and we're talking about missile period here now, and he's talking about the Vada Granth and the Shoda Granth, okay, so we're talking about Guru Granth Sab and Sayyidasim Granth Sab. And in his mind as well, he's talking about the equation being simple, that there's an older or greater grant and a smaller and a younger grant, because he's talking about Guru Granth Sahib and Sayyidasim Granth Sahib. And he talks about it as being equal and it being respected in the same kind of idea as well. So we have a tias which talks about the equalization of the grants. In terms of the actual physical Prakash and the concept of how the, and the Muriyadda in terms of what you're talking about is very, very important because this relates to the Daks, for instance. So the stream, supreme uh, thrones of polity, what we call it, the Daks, for instance. So we know even to this day that uh, we have Kaltak Saab, we have Patnar Saab, we have Yul Saab, and during that time, we also had the Buddha Dal as well as being a duct as well, because they were a Roman duct, for instance. But this idea of Prakash is a misnomer for the people who dispute it. And let me clarify this idea as well. I am not saying that since the time of Guru Gobind Singh that it was always the case that there would be a Rasrupa Guru Granth Sahib and Siddhartha Granth together. We think that it would have been prevalent during the missile period because they believed in the same concepts and ideas and the Buddha Dal represented this concept of Sansabai as well. Later on, Singh Sabha, or maybe even uh, late Ranjit Singh period, we start getting this central idea of just the Guru Granth Sahib's. Sorry, Guru Siddhi Guru Granth Sahib. But let's just put in context what um, Prakash means. Prakash is the idea that uh, both Sarups are in unison. If we go to Hayusab uh, now, we see both Sarups together. But Guru Granth Sahib is on a higher pedestal. Okay, just make this uh, just uh, for for the listeners' understanding. And Patna Sahib is slightly very uh, in the similar vein as well. If you go to Nahang Dal's, for instance, it's brother. There is no upper or lower because they consider it to be equal, which makes sense because they're from the idea or concept of the Buddha Dal. So therefore, we have this oral tradition as well. But what Akali Fula Singh did was, and it's really important, is people don't understand, is that all of our Mursar, because in order to have uh, or to become a Khalsa, you could only do it at the Akal Taksa. During the time of Maharaja Ranjit Singh, if you had to become Khalsa in Punjab, 
or maybe one location of Punjab, you had to go to the Kaltak Sahib. And guess what? You, the both groups were there and you could only become Kaltak with both Karaks. And this is early 18, well, we're talking about 1800 period. So therefore we have evidence of that. We even John Malcolm, and I know you're going to talk about the British's views. He talks about it. He quite categorically states what's going on there. We have other evidence sources saying that you cannot become a Khalsa without going to the Khaltaqsa, which was under the leadership of Kali Fula Singh and the Prakash of both trans used to take place. So this idea of Prakash being anomaly is not true. The idea of the Prakash becoming less prevalent is true from the 1900 period onward, we're talking about SGPC time and 1984 period as well. There's very two distinct periods there. So I personally think there's nothing wrong in this concept. I'm not saying it should be prevalent. I just think there should be an understanding because you do not have the recitation of the Dasam Grant on its own. You have the recitation of Sri Dasam Grant in the Hazuri of Guru Granth Sahib. Very, very important. This idea that people just read the Dasam Granth on its own is not true. It has to be in the Hazuri of Guru Granth Sahib. And that's why the Nidhanam is about the combination of both Granths. You do not have the Dasam Granth in separation from the Guru Granth Sahib. And I think that is the concept about uh, the, and the ideas about the Prakash as well. And I think that's very, very fundamental. No, that definitely makes a lot of sense. Now, I just wanted to then move on to, again, you've alluded to, again, the British and also the Sing Summer movement. And I guess I'm almost putting it all together in this because I think you can't quite explain one without the other. Um, So just then moving the conversation into the British's view slash perspective of Dasam Granth, the influence that then had on Singh Sabha and their view of Dasam Granth, how that impacted general Sikh practice. So for argument's sake, <clears throat> sorry, for argument's sake, today, if you go to the Akartak tribe, you won't see Dasam Granth. Um, and then also the role of the Sodak committee, because I think, again, I was quite shocked when I was doing research um, during my university degree to even come across this committee i never even knew it existed and again it was quite um revelatory in terms of how we formulated modern sikh practice even around the Sumkran. so again just those three topics really um yeah i'll, I'll let you continue from them let's break that down to three questions actually so um i'll try and answer one and remind me of the others but uh, let's stop with the british for instance this idea of the british the sikhs and i've worked on lots of sources related to the British, not just in terms of Sikhs, Dustin Ransom, but just per se about the Sikhs. And my recent book, The British and Sikhs, um, you can comment on how great it is or not so great um, in your own words. But the idea that the British and the Sikhs did not have a connection over an early period is a misnomer as well. You know, we know about Bandar Bahadur's Shahidi taking place and recognized by the, uh, by the British as well. But, um, in, like, like we talked about earlier on, when my earliest phase, when I'd just been uh, talking about my MA as well, uh, when I talked about Gurbachan Singh Lamba earlier on as well, I was allowed to actually write articles for the Sansapai magazine in Jalandhar. And that was 
um, under the patronage of the, I think it was they called that for the SGPC, which which your articles could not be published if they weren't uh, agreed with. And I wrote several articles um, on the city of Grant sub in the early 2000s. And one of them was about an individual called Charles Wilkins. And Charles Wilkins was an, an individual who stumbled upon or was told about, it's interesting, told about this institution at Patanasar, and which we um, which we now know is the cradle on and the idea where Gurkabin Singh was uh, was born. And he visits this uh, educational center, and I'm using the word carefully, educational center, because there's no he does not understand the concept of a Gurdwara or or Dharam Salah as we may have called it even at that time. So what he's saying is when I visited Patanasar, he sees the prakash of Guru Granth Sahib and Siddha Sugrat Sahib. He talks about the Shastas being there as well. He talks about various other practices, which is, you know, if you were to read the idea and concept of Charles Wilkins, it's exactly what we understand today. Apart from the fact that, you know, both grants are together. And the practices and the ideas were so important at that particular time. 1780s time period was the important bit for Charles Wilkins. We have other concepts as well, but when we get to Ranjit Singh's period, we get a plethora of, of information going, and we, we know about John Malcolm, and I really, really like uh, John Malcolm's book about the Sikhs. It's a very small book, but interestingly enough, he talks about what I just talked about. When you go to Amritsar, you see the Prakash of Guru Granth Sahib and Siddha Sahib because he's an eyewitness. What people don't seem to understand is it's not made up. He was an eyewitness to see the Prakash at that particular time. Let's link in another British individual by the name of Dr. John Layden. And I was mesmerized when back in the early 2000s when I came across uh, the English translations of Suri Bhutitanatak, uh, Brahm Samara Grant, and various other topics as well, that a Britisher in the early 1800s had actually uh, did a translation of Suri Bhutitanatak. I was cosmic. I could not believe it. And the idea that he even says Suri Bhutitanatak forms part of a wider work called the Suri Dasampashaka Grant. And this is the early formation of British views, which is the idea that the Siddhi Dasam Granth is the Rachna, is the concepts, is the ideas, and is the is the order of Guru Gobind Singh, early period. No one's disputing it. What we do have is a change during um, the time period after the Anglo-Sikh Wars. But I want to allude to something now as well. During the Anglo-Sikh Wars, what we do find is that we you talked about Sarups earlier on, but we have Sarups of that city Dasamgratsar found in the battlefield, which exists to, to this very day. We have one in Leicester, which I worked on in terms of our uh, exhibition of the Anglo sequels. Okay, so there's a, is a, sorry, it's a retina of uh, Guru Granth Sahib and Dasamgrat Bani's taken from the Anglo sequels. And there's other groups found which combines the Barney of both grants as well. So what we're trying to say is the British were aware that in the in warfare during the Anglo-Sikh Wars, 
the sarups which were taken were from both Guru Granth Sahib and Dasam Granth Sahib. We have them now to this day. Sharm Singh Adariwala, in the battlefield, his sword has the rachana of Shastra Namala on his sword and it was actually found in the battlefield. Still exists to this very day. So the British knew about these concepts of Siri Dasam Granth from the uh, late uh, 1700s period, during the time of Akali Fula Singh's authority and Ranjit Singh's period, to the time of the Anglo-Sikh Wars. Sorry, just a quick question. Um, a, a common narrative that's often put forward is that the British purposefully misreported or kind of had an agenda to tear the Dasam Granth away from the Sikh community. Let me explain that. I just purposely want to frame this question because a lot of people have had, a lot of people kind of go with this traditional viewpoint, which is that the British had this agenda from the get-go. They're all really bad. And again, like you've alluded to how history isn't just black and white. Um, And they kind of argued that, oh, the British had this agenda to get rid of the Biras because they knew that the Sikhs were a, a, a problem. Um. And again, everything you said so far is is brilliant in creating this really vivid image. But just then continuing with that, what is your perspective, I guess, of, of that kind of argument? Let me explain. And so therefore, we got to a point of the Anglo-Sikh war. So what we should allude to is this. And, we, and I think this is a fallacy of history per se. The Gora of 1900 is not the same Gora as 1800. The 1800 Gora is not the same as the 1700s. You may say the East India Company is all the same, etc, etc, etc. I disagree with that. And I point that out in my British and the Sikhs as well. Because if that was the case, then they would not have believed in the Biras and the concepts of Dasambani at that particular time. So therefore, what we have is a loss of information. Does that make sense? So just like you have lots of information in Sekatias, you have lots of information in British understanding. Would you perhaps would you perhaps argue that the kind of the objective of early British accounts was actually just to narrate and kind of share the information that was kind of coming to these people through their travels, and th- and then. And then perhaps the later on, then it's the kind of the objective changes in that actually Punjab is now coming up for like being conquered. Um, like, does that not affect the, 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 the writer? No, I disagree with that because that seems to be a common narrative because Charles Wilkin is not just describing, he's talking about specific. John Malcolm is not talking about a description. He's talking about specifics, very, very specific. We're talking about, you know, uh, in his book, he's talking about certain portions of Bhattitanada. This isn't like, there's a composition of Guru Gobind saying, we think it's warlike, we possibly, it's no possible. This is definitive, these are definitive facts at that particular time reported by the British. No, sorry, what, what I meant by that was, do you think that later um, British accounts that perhaps are disparaging of the Sangrant or whatever are actually because the objective for them in terms of the agenda has changed. Like as you've as you mentioned earlier, accounts are very just objective about it. They're very clear that Dasambani is, for argument's sake, Good Gorming Sinji's work. Whereas some of them later on and again, it's a common narrative which is portrayed, which is all oh, because Punjab then came up for um 
being annexed um the the kind of the tone or the viewpoint of the writer is or, or the objective of why these people were out there had changed once we get to the point of annexation okay we have a different mindset because the british are now in a area of control okay and like i said there's a loss of information between the time of john malcolm to the time of annexation so annexation and beyond is looking at a different concept of what the Sikhs are about. So what we have then is, and it's in my British and the Sikhs book, they look at translators, okay? And they look at translators like uh, Ernest Trump to translate the Guru Granth Sahib, okay? Which he does to a certain extent. But the narrative which people have forgotten and the concept is he was actually... Um, commissioned to translate not just the Guru Granth Sahib, but the Dasam Granth as well. And I allude to it in the British and Sikhs book. And what happened was that Ernest Trump, even if he was a linguist, could not understand the concepts of the Dasam Granth. So he, again, and I'll say this quite categorically, like Sikhs, like his other uh, British individuals, could not concept, uh, consider the ideas and concepts of what the city doesn't run was about because it's not in context. So what he was trying to do was say, and he fell for that trap because he saw the Sikhs as being a martial race and like the lot of British sons did. And then when they saw the Dasengrad, they start saying, well, hold on a second, there's, there's talk about Dave, Dave and Davy here. Hold on. We want to separate the Sikhs from the Hindus. So therefore, uh, firstly, I don't understand it. So I'm getting rid of it. I'm not interested in translating it. So the Dustin Grant's project under um, Ernest Trump was actually put to one side. He, I see, I've got, I've seen the letters which were given to Gyanis at that time as well. And basically some Gyanis are saying, yeah, we don't know what Dustin Grant's about, etc. Others were saying, yes, it's a Rajanav Guru Gobind Singh. So we start getting the first kind of... Um, uh, departing of the British saying, well, we're not sure what the grant's about post-annexation. You know, this is later on, 1857, later on. But what we do find is that in certain individuals are very, very clear in terms of what Dasambani is about. And I'm going to talk specifically about this idea about Shasta Vidya and the banning of weapons. In the early, let's say about 10 years ago, individuals were pro propagating that the British have banned the Dasam Granth. The British have uh, said that you can't wear Shastras, for instance. Yeah, the, the Nahangs are finished. You cannot, Nahangs can't wear um, Shastras, for instance. But what people have missed out is that it wasn't a specific Sikh thing. There was something called the Arms Act, which is created by the British, in order to de demilitarize not just the Sikhs, but India per se, in terms of you can't carry weapons, for instance, you, you can't be marshaled. But at the same time, the British were also trying to think, well, what are the key traits of the Sikhs which we can use for the British Indian Army? Okay, so on the one hand, you've got individuals who can't understand the Dasam Brad, but at the same hand, You've got individuals who are saying, okay, well, what is the martial prowess of the Khalsa? And guess what? Some of the early regiments actually quotes the lines from Dasam Granth as part of their mottos, for instance. So the early regiments had uh, concepts and phrases from uh, the city of Dasam Granth. So what I'm trying to say, there's a mixed bag here. This idea that all of a sudden we want to ban the Dasam Granth, this, that, and the other. 
I personally do not agree with that assertion. There seems to be a lot of rhetoric out there, but there doesn't seem to be any evidence from it. What we do have is, yes, we have demilitarization. Did they want to um, make sure the power of the Nahangs were down? Yeah, absolutely, because the Nahangs from the time of Kalifullah Singh were the main opposition. Ranjit Singh was friends with the British. He was writing letters to them. They were, they were in his court every single day, so there's no opposition there. Kalifullah Singh was the first people to attack the British when they came to Punjab. So the Nahangs were going to be finished. That was the whole idea. And the concepts might be deliberate as well. But this idea of banning the Marshal Barney, etc., it was just a broad, uh, byproduct, I would say, of what's happening. Not specifically. I've never read any English literature saying that we are going to destroy the dust and rounds, we're going to burn books, etc. This sort of fallacies. The British never did that. And I'm being very kind to the British in, in the face of the atrocities they may have occurred, the, the, the badness, you know, taking the leap, saying, you know, getting rid of our empire. No, fair. Um, and this is why I enjoy doing these podcasts, is because not do I just get the pleasure of... Um, exploring kind of these topics with people who are actually quite frank and honest about it but equally um obviously because we're recording it we can share this with everyone else which which is quite um sweet really um something then obviously just continuing on from the british then how did the views of the british then impact the Singh Sabha and how did Singh Sabha impact just general Sikh practice in relation to Dasam Kran? well i think I talked about the Arms Act earlier on, and in defiance to the Arms Act, the Akal Taksab actually had a Hukumnami as well, which talks about um, making sure that you practice Shasta Vidya, make sure you're still in Katra, and you still have the concepts of the Khalsa, just during the British period. And I find it uh, amusing almost that uh, if you've got the Arms Act, you also have Hukumnami from the Akal Taksab saying that, yes, we still need to be marshaled because six are Sikhs. What we do have is this idea that uh, the Singh Sabha movement incorporates, and now this is another take. So we're talking about the idea that um, the British is destroying uh, Marshall Barney, etc. But what we don't understand is the fact that the British have influenced the Sikhs themselves. So we get to this idea of Singh Sabhas, which is a revolutionary movement against the British, or, or, well, no, not necessarily against the British, but against the indoctrination of Hindu themes proliferating um, Sikhi, for instance, and being a distinct and separate race. I personally think it was the British concept which has been put in within the Sikhs to understand that, because we know things are fluid. And people don't like this concept of Sikhi being fluid. They like it being fit into a box, okay? They like this box theory. This box theory of the Sikhs was an SGPC thing, 1920 onwards. Here is the Red uh, Merata. Here's what we believe in. Here's what you have to follow, 5Ks, etc., etc. Sikhi was never that. It never was during the time of Guru Gobind Singh. There was the time during Ranjit Singh. And it was very fluid. That's why you could have... Uh, the Nahans, you could have the Niramli, you could have the Adasi, you could have various sampradaya at that particular time. But they wanted to end it because it was a case of a homogenous Sikh. But interestingly, and this is where Oberoi comes in, and we talk about it a lot in our Dasan Grant book as well, is that uh, these concepts 
which the Sikh took upon themselves were from British institutions. So this idea of the SGPC, which is Sikh you know, Guru Prabhupada Committee, for instance, um, is a committee. Committee word is obviously British, for instance. And other concepts were a British connotation of how the Sikhs were to fight the British. And again, it's really important to understand and put this in perspective. When the Khalsa went to battle with the Mughals and the Afghans, for instance, they had to incorporate certain strategies and ideas from the Mughals and the Afghans to battle them. And in this vein, in this idea, we also have the Sikhs actually having institutions which are British-like. So we have this dichotomy of Sikhs saying that we're going to shed our leaves and now we're going to battle or take on the British with British ideas. And as a consequence of that was in the early 1900s, we have this idea that, okay, look, and that's something which I've not alluded to is that the martial race as well, because in the military sense, um, the British were looking at the Sikhs as a martial race and distinguishing themselves from the Hindu as well, okay? So when we get to the 1920s period, they're shedding this Hindu connotations. It happens in 1984 as well, and I'll allude to that later. But it happens in the early 1900 period where anything which is the liking of or has connotations of Hindus, we're going to shed. And that's what happened in 1920, whereby, you know, the battle took place at the Akaldak Saab with these individuals of the Sabars, early formation of the SGPC, and Baba Kaladari. Let me put this in perspective. So we have the Prakash of Guru Granth Sahib and Sri Dasan Granth Sahib taking place at the Akaldak Saab. And individuals are sent to throw the Dasan Granth Sahib outside the window. Spears are thrown to destroy the concepts of the Nahangs. This is the worst travesty we can have in, 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 in Sikh history per se. The idea of, of a reform movement calling themselves the Akalis, turfing out the real Akalis who are the Nahang Singhs, takes place in the 1920s. I allude to it, I've got evidence of it in the books where they're saying, you Akalis, Akalis are phony, you're fakes, we're the real Akalis now, as in the SGPC, which is about to formulate. And this is these ideas which with British space because the idea of we're shedding these ideas of Hindu themed ideas was the basis of which these sabbaths came about. We have these idea of the Mahants, for instance. Oh, okay, so you've got a hereditary idea of whether you owned a Gurdwara. It's really interesting. Let's just take the Ram Gurya Bungas, for instance. That was hereditary to the point of the 1970s. It's hereditary. And then the SGPC got rid of the family who was in charge of the uh, Rangoliya Bungars, for instance. I know them personally. But what I'm trying to say is that um, this idea that the Sikhs and the British were, 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 you know, is a dichotomy is very, very true because the concepts which the Singh Sabha movement actually incorporated are British. They're not Khalsa. They're British ideas, even though they were trying to destroy or get rid of the shackles of, of the British, it was very much in a British vein. And as a result of that, the consequences was, let's get rid of the traditional orders, the Nahangs we're going to have to dispose of. 
Just see, Justin Grant gets turfed out of the, the Akar Taksar. It's absolutely unbelievable. Just exploring that a little bit further and perhaps <clears throat> connecting it to the Sodak Committee, how does all of that relate and how did or what led up to the events of the 1920s and this kind of um, watershed moment of actually getting rid of the Dasam Grant from the Akal Takht? See, the Sodak Committee is a very, very interesting um, committee because <laughs> it's called so Sodak Committee. But it was created to actually not talk about authenticity. They looked at 32 surups of the city that's from Ransab to look at variations. That was, the, that was their goal, not authenticity, because that's where people get this fallacy. Let me just put in context as well. When they write in the, um, in the report by Sadul Singh, I think it was, um, what he writes is that um, we have Prakash already taking place. We already have Saroops within the vicinity of Harmanda Saab and the Akaltak Saab. He's already talking about it being a common idea. So the, the actual Soda Committee idea is to look at additional Barneys as well, because what we have is several Barneys which we consider as being established. There was various other Saroops which had other Barneys as well. And really, really importantly, that's why we also wrote the Grant of Guru Gobind Singh book because it talks about, we'll use the word loosely, apocryphal compositions. Compositions which are not in the standard City Dustin Grant now, but were very established prior to the Sodok Committee. So, what the Sodok Committee did was they actually looked at the Barneys from these 32 groups and said, well, we think X amount of Barneys should be in a standardized version of the Dustin Grant. They did not say that certain Barnia were not of the Guru. They did not explain themselves in that report, which is baffling in itself. So we get a standardized version of the city Dasam Grant at that particular time. So you, it's up to the reader, the listener, to actually understand what they were trying to do. They never, ever, during that particular point, ever said that, the Rajna or these concepts of the Guru of the Guru within the Siddhartha is not of the Guru. It was more about trying to standardize something. I personally think it was the wrong move because uh, certain Barneys were excised from that idea. But luckily for all the readers, we were able to incorporate the apocryphal Barneys within the the book, second book, which I'm talking about. So. There must have been some ideas which had a bearing on what was to be, was to become. So early 1900s, if you talk about even Khan Singh Nabba, for instance, he talks about certain bits in relation to Sidhasam Grant. We have Tejas Singh Bashur, who absolutely wants to take certain Barneys out of the Sidhasam Grant as well. He creates his own grant, buries it in the ground. It's just crazy what he was trying to do. He gets um, Shankar from the uh, from the Pant as well because even at that time, as much as the Sikal Saab and we had the reformers, individuals still understood the power of the Dasam Bani as well and the Sikal Saab as well. But the idea that um, 
individuals, even though we had this attack on the Suyakal Taksab and the Dasam Granth at that time, did not mean that people did not believe in Dasam Bani going forward. Earlier on, you um, alluded to how the Dasam Granth and this idea of sovereignty is quite prominent. And again, I guess it's also mirrored within the Guru Granth Sahib Ji. Now, considering the complex relationship the Sikhs have with the British, um, especially considering the Annex Punjab, and as you rightfully said, they're not necessarily kind of persecuting the Sikhs on their own. Um, the Sikhs are just being affected by kind of just wide scale measures that the British are taking. So the Arms Act obviously affects everybody. Um, but how does that ideology fit then considering post annexation the british are essentially invaders however as we all know the people on the on the ground had to to some degree cooperate in order for this empire and this this organization to run and again something that is i guess quite topical because sikhs in the army comes up again and again and again and again like you're an advisor for uh, a movie that is based on sikh soldiers in the first world war so i would love to get your opinion then on how that idea idea of sovereignty and being kind of chakravarti and kind of akal and beyond time and beyond these nation states and national armies um and then also this tradition of serving within these armies there's a lot of context in terms of the question you just asked but i want to take it a little bit earlier if that makes sense because there's been a fallacy that um, in 1849 the Punjab was annexed. Okay, I'm going to use the word fallacy because it's not simply true. The Punjab was technically annexed in the early 1800s when Ranjit Singh had to sign the Treaty of Amritsar and the Sausage River, and I've talked about it in the British and the Sikhs because what happened was that territory under the Sausage was. Even though Sikhs were allowed to actually govern as they were, etc., but they were still under British jurisdiction. And my problem with Ranjit Singh and the concept of the Sikh Empire is that um, the Missal period had a larger territory. Okay, we had a lot of territory in the areas of which we call data on um, Pakistan, but our border was up to the point of the River Jumna. So the Korea Singha missile under Bagheel Singh, we held various tracts of territory. Obviously, Ranjit Singh was very young and he did not understand this concept of the missiles in terms of how much territory they actually had. So when he signed the treaty with the British, he virtually gave half of Punjab to the British at that particular time in the early 1800s. People hark on about uh, 1849. Punjab was finished in the early 1800s because the River Sutlej. So let's just talk about the River Sutlej. You talk about all the families that you know about who lived under the River Sutlej. They were under British control. Whilst the British did not exercise um, military control, what they said was that the Sikhs cannot control that border within a certain designation. So what that means is that um, this idea of sovereignty was disappeared in the early 1800 period. That's why we had the Nahans, that's why we had a Kalifullah Singh challenging Ranjit Singh and saying, don't let this disappear. Because our border was at the River Jumna. I'm working on the Sikh missile period right now, and I'm absolutely astonished as to how much territory was given away by Maharaja Ranjit Singh. 
Forget annexation. It's all about people talking about the British this, British this, British that. And before all of a sudden anyone turns to me and says, how come you're talking about the British in this light? Because I'm looking at the facts and I'm into the facts. And that's all I'm into. I'm not interested in having a narrative on what you believe and what's the popular narrative. If I believed in a popular narrative, I would not have even dealt with the Dutton Rats up. So for me, we were dead in the water many years ago, uh, prior to annexation. So what we have to kind of understand is that if we look at Patiala, Naba, Jind and Kalsia people, and you know about the state of Kalsia, the Kalsia state was based on Baba Bagil Singhs. Remember the conqueror of Delhi, his outpost was on the area of the river Jamuna. We had massive kingdoms, okay? which were given away to the British overnight. So this idea of the British taking over the Sikhs and then incorporating them into the army, uh, into the army was already there, if that makes sense, because 1846, 1849, the Gauri had already had this relationship with, with these Patiale, Nabeje, the Kalsia and all these, and even Kaputla to some extent as well. Remember, Kaputla is the house of Jesus in Alwalia in collusion with the British. And I'm not going to use the word collusion, it was normal. They didn't even think about this idea of inclusion or not in, conclu uh, in collusion with these people. It was just what was bettering their, their state at that particular time. So, for, so when you get to the time of annexation, oh, we need Bharti, we need individuals for our army, it was the same concept as when the East India Company had gone into the early, uh, you know, in the 18th century and asked for recruits from the sepoys. They used the word sepoys in terms of other Indian individuals to prop up their army. There's no difference there. And I think our people have lost this idea or concept of you colluding with the British and not colluding with the British. It was always there. No, that's fair. But then how does that perhaps interact with this idea of being sovereign then because if you're signing over your territory and i guess this again also explains the the tension between the Akalis during the reign of Ranjit Singh because you're right um i think it was with the Vindatur he was discussing about how um I can't remember who, but it was a British individual who was being shown around them that suddenly the Akalis basically jump out and start throwing shit at them and beating them up or whatever. Shaw. You're talking about Augustus Shaw, who was a painter. I don't know whether it was him or it was. I think it was actually someone in the mili in the British military, and it was and it was quite um, illustrative of the point that actually, although the uh, Sikh lead the 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 leader figures in in terms of Ranjit Singh or the uh, the the other Sikh state may have perhaps been signing over their sovereignty, quote unquote. The Nahangs were obviously very much aware of the threat that the British posed. Um, just bringing that question into a bit of a more of a modern landscape, a lot of people, and it's an interesting debate to be in the middle of, and I guess it's also come up very recently, which is this entire thing of Sikhs being within the British military and how like one's oil and one's water and they can't necessarily mix like again I'm completely undecided on the opinion and it's a question that comes up in a couple of the podcasts but with someone of your research and the time you've spent doing like the, the breadth of research you've done um like what are your uh, what's your perspective on that 
Yeah, it's a difficult one. I think the key point here is that the Nahangs were the only protect protectors of the Sikh faith. Everyone else wasn't. But in saying that though, and again, I'm going to be a little bit negative here, and you will not probably possibly believe it, but I'll put it in the British and the Sikhs book, is that uh, the forefathers of Baba Deep Singh, okay, the Shahidi missile, they sided with the British as well during the time. So it's really interesting how we have forefathers of Baba Deep Singh siding with the British, but we have the, the Nahangs under Kalifula Singh fighting the British. So I just want to bring that point to the fore because I think it's important to understand who sided with the British and it's more rather than less. This is a very, very important point. This idea that we do not have conversations with the enemy, this idea we do not have collusions with the enemy is a fallacy. It's always taken place from the missile period to day one, basically. The concept has always been this. The idea that we are a sovereign nation, okay, but we will have dialogue with individuals. Why do you think Kabul Singh was given the mantle and he had the Jagir from, from, from the Mughals? Or I think it might be the Afghans or Mughals. He had the Jagir, but he had to go to the Panjapiari, including Baba Deep Singh, to actually accept that. The idea that we're having Jagir from the enemy is a purpose for a common cause for the future. The idea that Baba Bagheel Singh on the board of Jamna Sahib um, was, you know, he was dealing with the Mughals all the time. He was making deals. The Gora Singha missile, these, um, the uh, Nishanwali missile, Irangari missile, they all made deals with the Mughals. This idea that there was no chivalry. We have letters from the Khalsa to um, the Mughal Empire. We have letters from the Khalsa to the British. And they're talking about friendship, but they don't. But, but the point being is, they don't want to. People don't want to hear that. They want to make it that there are these people are common enemies. But what I'm trying to point out is, I'm not saying that the Sikhs want to be friends with the British, or I'm not saying Sikhs want to be friends with the with the Mughals. But there was this dialogue, and I think that's the most important idea because dialogue is something that's missing from the from Sikhs now because Sikhs sometimes cannot uh, kind of have this dialogue with the Indian state. My concept is and my idea is that we should learn from this earlier period to say as a sovereign nation, as individuals who can bargain and get what they want did take place and it should still take place to this very present day. That That is completely valid and, and I don't think anyone has any questions about dialogue and again you've listed off a number of facts that support that um, and, and there's obviously a lot more out there too but I think the the bit that I'm trying to get at is, is that actually after 1849 the, this kind of like like let's be honest the, this idea of the Sikhs being sovereign after 1849 and again you've alluded to it beginning far before is, is just null and void there is no power base that the Sikhs are, can or are being able to talk from um and i think the difference between for argument's sake and jeet singh's empire talking almost on par with another nation state is very different to sikhs then being enrolled in a let quote unquote a foreign nation state's army because that was initially how sikhs would have been in, inducted into uh the colonial army again we've spoken about how just saying ramgadia and how he was employed for argument's sake using um just like an easy narrative the the army of the enemy um but there's still a level of sovereignty within that but 
that's I, like for me i don't think that's the same as um for argument's sake not having a power base at all um and i think that's what a lot of people perhaps would be pointing at which is how does like how does sovereignty continue then i guess post that period considering there is no there is no governmental structure there is no seat power base for quote unquote um there is no locus of um sovereignty it's a good point it's it's a good point and like you said the power base was with the nahangs and people always like to downplay the kalis you know trying to separate them from the bant thing there's some kind of weird kind of concoction or whatever it is but the bant was kind of after the nahangs were kind of you know after kali uh, baba hanuman saying you know during the first anglo-sikh war we many of the nahangs were decimated it was just it's just fact so the concept of the maryadda the concepts the ideas of the time period from guru gobind singh were kind of eroding um in the late um 1800 period but at the same time what the british thought was important was to incorporate the sikhs within their army and you may think well why you've just fought uh, this nation but what you got to remember is that uh, people had no jobs people have no money so what are you going to do i guess what you're alluding to is that the narrative is far more complex than just saying actually it's x or y because people have to like irrespective of framework or guidelines or whatever you want to kind of label it there are still just human needs being able to i don't know put food on the table for for argument's sake um and so obviously forms of employment may have been limited um which again is completely valid um just then i guess continuing with the theme of the british um i would love to get your understanding because i'm sure you would have come across this in 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 the work that you've done which is how did certain copies of the dasam granth end up leaving india and getting out for argument's sake to the british library or to other institutions across the world yeah it's a, it's a very good question and um there's this idea that I talk about it again the British and Sikhs this idea that all the fruits were stolen by the British as well I'm sounding like I'm really uh, in the favor of the British but I'm not it's all about facts I will always be on the level ground in terms of what's going on here so again my understanding of all sroops and understanding of how things have arrived in the UK I've been doing for almost 10 years over 10 years in terms of how relics and artifacts have arrived from the Punjab to the UK firstly we have this idea and I mentioned about Ranjit's great friendship with the British in terms of reciprocal you know when you reciprocate gifts and ideas so you know and it worked in the detriment of the british as well because you know the british were giving canon patterns for instance which lena semojetia and you know even the european ferengi were incorporating to create a great khalsa army for instance but at the same time gifts were also given in terms of patronage to to england as well so sroops some sroops we're not talking many we're talking about a couple men who come to to england which were uh, given as gifts to the kings and queens of england so that's the earlier period we talk about sroops here not necessarily shastras and all other kinds of stuff other things were gifted from the time of maharaja ranjit singh to the british in the same way that things were gifted by the british 
to the Sikhs as well. This is called diplomacy. It's called about, you know, it's the same thing which happened in India as well. So if you're meeting a Maratha, you meet a Mughal, Afghan, same thing, no, nothing different here. However, what we do have is a second period of annexation where the Toshakana of Maharaja Ranjit Singh gets ransacked, various relics and artifacts are taken, including Sarubs. Uh, in fact, let me go a little bit earlier as well. So on the battlefields of the Anglo-Sikh wars, Sarubs are actually found in the battlefield. So it leads to the credence that uh, you have to have these banya, you have to have these manuscripts in warfare. So we have Sarubs, like I said, earlier on, which are found and they're taken by the British as well. And they still exist to this very day in England. Annexation leads to the Toshakana being ransacked, whatever's in the Toshakana, where it's the Sarubs, uh, Koino diamond, for instance, we have jewelry, we have shawls, we have elaborate amount of wealth, which is taken by the British, is all taken. And it's all proliferated within various museums across the UK. We had the Indian Museum, which is a forerunner to the uh, Victoria Albert Museum. We have things at the Tower, which is called the Tower of London, and that eventually led to the Leeds Armoury uh, formulating, and it dissipates across various museums across the UK. But there's another caveat to that as well. We talked about individual siding with the British, and interestingly, later on as well, we have uh, Shastas, for instance, being donated and given by Patiala, Jind, Kaputla. We talked about these uh, states earlier on also being gifted to the British as well. So this idea that everything that the British took was stolen is not completely true. They were gifted during the time of Maharaja Rajit Singh. They were ransacked and it's an absolutely unbelievable amount of wealth that the British took after annexation. But then many items were given by Sikh states to the British as well. So therefore, when it comes down to understanding Sikh regs and artifact human roots, it's very hard to ascertain, or well, it's not very hard, but it's very important to understand that there were three phases of how items have arrived in the UK per se. And unfortunately, people get confused in terms of how this happens. And we need to make that distinction so we're very clear as to what's happened. Because if it took a place during annexation, then it's really important because we need to know what the British took and what and what importance that has within the modern day but i think personally i think museums have had a change in their mindset in terms of how they portray and actually explore items and obviously as part of the seat museum initiative for over five years we've been working with museums across the uk including some of the biggest ones to make sure that we have a better understanding of what items they have and what it means, not just to the British, but to the Sikhs as well. And I'm not talking about repatri repatriation, but look, with the work we've been doing with digital technologies, they've made objects come alive from UK institutions because they have faith in us to actually say that let's have a balanced approach to how we actually view these relics and artifacts. And I think that's a sensible approach, but at the same time, yeah, I understand the calls from India, Punjab, Pakistan saying these items should go back. But at the same time, you know, we have to work with institutions to make sure they have Miranda as well. So when we worked with the University of Leicester, we've made a cradle for the Sunup. Uh, and again, it's a it's a it's a it's good class, we call it body of 
Barney saw the Grugan saw and that's and blood. We had cradle made, we we have like a covering for it, etc. So let's work with the institutions as well, because that's important because they have a better understanding of the value of Sikh manuscripts, relics and artifacts as well. So I think, you know, um, it's an important point in this day and age. Thank you for that. That's very, very insightful. Um, just one last question then before um wrapping up i guess is have there been any successful translations and if so could you direct us to the one you would suggest is most accurate again it's very very difficult i want to talk about dr george singh for instance so dr george singh punjabi university patiala great friend of mine who in again in the early days i had a lot of sympathy in terms of where he was coming from because he had to battle um, individuals in terms of what the debates were about is he did the first translations of the Dasamrat in Hindi, for instance. Let's check this out. In Hindi. And it's interesting because the Hindu populace at the time said, well, this is absolutely fascinating because we've just read a Granth, which is so amazing, and the words and the concepts of the Dasamrat by Guru Gobind Singh is mind-blowing. So he did something really, really, really important. If we're talking about English translations, we've had versions by Srinath uh, Sinkoli, for instance, we had um, translations by an individual commentary, I can't remember his name, we had online translations as well. Unfortunately, from my perspective, they still lack their depth in terms of what the city doesn't run sub in the right way should be. And don't get me wrong, Dr. George Singh and Dr. Dalam Singh, when they did their translation, two volumes, was a, was a start, but I think still think to this day, there's never never been, and you know what people have been saying to me, Dr. Gomorup saying to do this kind of work, it's probably beyond our scope at this particular time, but um, we do need better translations. You know, some the problem is that the translations appear online, then they disappear, but I think the key concept is that um, we should try and read Dasambani anyway, in whichever context you have it, and at least get the essence of what Dasambani is about. Because once you've got the essence, then you can take it from there. Either read it in the original Gurmukhi, you can have a look at the original uh, uh, Sarups as well. But I would rather say, what does Dasambani mean in the present day? Okay, because we are removing ourselves from the court of Guru Gobind Singh. We're removing ourselves from the idea of Shasta Vidya, which we're not really talking about. We're removing ourselves from the idea of uh, Rajniti, which is what Dasmula is talking about. We're removing ourselves from the idea that we are a sovereign nation, because Dasmula is talking about being a sovereign nation. We're talking about this idea that the lineage from Guru Nanak to Das um, Guru Gobind Singh is you know one complete jolt this jolt this light this concepts and ideas are the same because you've got to remember in 1699 at the time of Kanda they did not understand what Guru Gobind Singh was talking about because it was far reaching it was worldwide reaching in terms of what Guru Gobind Singh was trying to achieve this idea of merging the sun supply into one you know amazing formation of you know, this, you know, this ultimate warrior almost, you know what I mean, to, to to use a phrase. So I personally think it's about reading, it's about understanding. It goes back to this idea of Sikhs being learners. It goes back to this idea of the Govies and this important um, revenue, actually, revenue of resources that we had 
even during the time of Guru Gobind Singh. Yeah, people talk about the internet, we don't have this, we don't have this, we don't have lack of this. And I talked about it earlier on in terms of being a field scholar. Don't worry about what you don't have, look about what you have at this time. Look at in terms of what you can do. And I think people have missed a big trick in terms of what the Dasam City, Dasam Dasam represents to this very day and where it's age as well. People keep talking about Chetapakyan, but Chetapakyan is this moral ground of where you should move away from pitfalls as well. Because Jopi Saab, you know, really important Barney, talks about this idea of this mess of the world that we live in. You know, Kabir Bacha Jopi Saab is about this idea that the Kavi, as in Guru Gobind Singh, is relating this idea that with all the fallacies, you know, the nonsense of the world, we still believe in this concept of Kalpur. We will have this meditation on the Shastras, for instance, and we will lead to our Sikhs being, you could talk about sovereign nation, but lead to being individuals in society where we can keep our heads up. And I think that's what Guru Gobind Singh was trying to achieve with the Dasam Granth. Whether individuals understand it, don't understand it, and again, I don't. It's about your perception. But I personally think, from my work and my research, is that Guru Gobind Singh created a grant which is so far-reaching, and it's so important that uh, people still do, have not fathomed it to this very day. This idea of giving Rajniti, this idea of giving concepts of putting Dharam in, you know, in context, in terms of interfaith, we talk about Jyotipakyan, you know, he's ransacked various philosophies and ideas all around the world as well to give it a context. I think it's unbelievable that Dasan Pasha, Guru Gobind Singh has created such a masterpiece in world literature, Bani, you can call it wherever you want, it's just unfathomable. To me, to me, to this very day, I just find it very fascinating, very interesting. And it is something which, if six to this day do not understand, they really need to get on board because they're missing this big chunk. I'll call it a big chunk. Because you've got to remember, if the Prakash of Guru Granth Sahib and Siddhartha Granth Sahib took place at all the ducts, for instance, it was an established practice. So in 2021, if you're saying we do not understand the concepts of the Siddhas and Grand Sons, we do not understand the concepts of Prakash, it's not for me to tell you what you're missing because in a is and concepts, and I talked about transmission, it's always been there. It's always been there. Unfortunately, what's happened is our scholars, our our Gyanis, our Dharam has not been able to propagate this idea of what the Siddhi Dasam Granth Sahib means to the populace. Hopefully, the books that are created, you know, Siddhi Dasam Granth Question Answers, the Granth of Guru Gobind Singh, and massive praise to Dr. Komarup Singh as well to you know, give that additional uh, concepts and the ideas behind what we're trying to achieve with these books is, is paramount. But um, I personally think it's been a long struggle. I personally think um, the mindset from the 1920s is infiltrated, I'll use the word infiltrated, the common sea, where they cannot see past a box where you fit in this box. If you're not part of this box, then you're not a Sikh. And that was never the case prior to 1920. No, prior, even during the time of Guru Gobind Singh. So for me, 
the concept of Guru Granth Sahib and Sayyidah Granth Sahib is about the future. It's about how we make ourselves a sovereign nation, considering both Granth. If you don't consider both Granth, we're not a sovereign nation. The Dasam Granth is about a sovereign nation. If we look at uh, Janel Singh Bindrawale, when he's talking about um, the concepts during 1984, he's reciting from Dasam Granth every single day. So I do get confused, but at the same time, I'm very happy in terms of the way the world has changed almost in terms of the way we view Guru Gobind Singh. But far as I'm concerned, I've been very blessed in terms of the knowledge. I think Guru Gobind Singh has blessed me personally in terms of taking this challenge. And I'll be indebted to Maharaj for giving me opportunity to even talk about his Barney because I don't consider myself to be anyone great. I don't consider myself to be anyone important. But during the time when it's very difficult to and challenge a lot of people in terms of Sidhya Sambranth Sahib, it took it takes its toll. It took its toll on me, it took its toll on various people. But I'm to this day very pleased that in 1997 when I took this journey in terms of looking at the city that's in Grand Sahib, I will never look back. I will never look back on Guru Gobind Singh and I'll never look back on Guru Gobind Singh Barney because it's of the major importance. And unfortunately, if you don't believe in it, if you do not, even if the masses don't believe in it, I don't care. Because personally for me, this is the greatest achievement of Guru Gobind Singh to ensure that the Khalsa was, you know, had its form. It's the most important Barney to ensure that we had a kingdom, it's most important bond to ensure that we could get through the worst scenarios of the 18th century and to the point of giving Rajniti also to Maharaja Ranjit Singh as well. And that is for me, the great colossus, Master Kavi Guru Gobind Singh. No, fair. Um, I just wanted to double check if there's anything in particular that you wanted to cover or include um, just before kind of wrapping up. I just, I just don't want this interview to sound like I'm very pro-British. Did it come across that way? I don't want it. To- I wouldn't say it's pro-British. I think the, um, the beauty of these conversations is that there's the ability to, well, the ability to have a conversation lends itself to being able to express nuance and actually be quite frank with the facts. And this is why I try to have these conversations with people who are in their fields. They've spent however long doing the research and the work. They've got. Um, something to show for it so for argument's sake the books that you've put out um and then having these conversations because to be honest i'm just trying to better my own understanding um and then sharing obviously this conversation with others is just a benefit of of doing this um and so i don't i wouldn't necessarily say you're a pro-british but i think you perhaps are being honest to the sources that you're dealing with um and i don't think anyone can can blame you for that um but no, if there's nothing else that you wanted to include, I just want to say thank you, obviously, for taking the time out to do this. No, all I'm going to say is thank you very much. 